Barrett is a devout Catholic who's taken conservative stances on abortion, gun rights and immigration. The human rights campaign has called her a, quote, absolute threat to LGBTQ rights, unquote. One issue that's likely to be raised if Judge Barrett is nominated to the Supreme Court is her membership in a secretive Catholic group called People of Praise. Members of the group pledge a lifelong loyalty oath to the group, which assigns each member a personal advisor known as Heads for Men and until recently Handmaids for Women. The secretive group has a strictly patriarchal structure in which men are the heads of household with power over their wives and families. The group has been described by some as cult-like. The Senate did not question Barrett about people of praise directly during her 2017 confirmation hearing for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. But California Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein did question Barrett about her views on Roe v. Wade and her religious views. My name is Ben Burgess, and this is Give Them an Argument, Episode 7. In just a moment, I am going to be speaking to Wazni Lambre, that would be Big Waz from Woke Bros and uh, many other places. Um, after that, I'm going to be talking to the man who I very much hope uh, is going to be the next uh, congressman from San Francisco, Shahid Buttar. Uh, who is running against the absolutely uh, loathsome uh, corporate Democrat, uh, Nancy Pelosi. Um, and the voice you just heard was Amy Goodman uh, talking on Democracy Now! about Amy Coney Barrett, uh, who Trump uh, is appointing to succeed Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, as one of the people who gets a lifetime appointment as a philosopher king authorized to rewrite our laws. Um, so in that clip, you got what we're often hearing about this, right? You tend to hear one of two things, either uh, that the Republicans are being very hypocritical uh, for being willing to vote on Barrett um, just you know, a little over a month uh, before an election, uh, after previously claiming with Merrick Garland that it was a point of great principle uh, that they would not uh, even hold hearings on a Supreme Court nominee during an election year, uh, which is, of course, true. But, you know, pointing out somebody's hypocrisy uh, and five dollars will get you a cup of coffee. Uh, and the other, which I think is much more justified, is concern about um, Barrett's views uh, as a extremely conservative Catholic who possibly coincidentally uh, has fanatical, fanatically right-wing positions on issues like abortion. Uh, she was also just a plain old right-winger uh, with fanatically anti-union views, for example. That's something you can absolutely expect uh, from, uh, from more of, right? We already got the Janus decision uh, crushing uh, one of the main funding sources of public sector unions. I think we're going to get a lot more of that uh, in coming years, especially if we have Barrett on the Supreme Court. But I want to take both of these things one at a time because I think they're both important. So one issue um, is the Merrick Garland one. And frankly, I think this should be a learning experience. I think reflecting on this should show um, what a silly thing it was to say that the Republicans had stolen 
uh, Merrick Garland's seat. Uh, that's absurd. They, um, and the way you can see that it's absurd is if you imagine that Antonin Scalia had held on to his wretched life uh, for a year longer or even for four years longer. So uh, perhaps Scalia and his friend Ruth Bader Ginsburg had died on the same day in September 2020. And let's also imagine uh, while we're doing, you know, hypothetical wild thought experiments, uh, that we had uh, Senate Democrats with a spine uh, who were willing to use every trick in the book to delay hearings on Trump's appointments. So remember, in this scenario that I'm giving you, there is no Merrick Garland precedent to make the Republicans hypocritical. Nevertheless, if Democrats had refused to allow Donald Trump to fill those two seats and had uh, managed to hold on for a few months in the hopes that a Democrat would fill that seat with Democratic justices, everybody who cares about abortion rights, collective bargaining rights, and every other right that is put in danger by putting somebody like Barrett on the Supreme Court would cheer, and they should, because all of those rights that I just mentioned are vastly more important than some piddling informal norm uh, about how the Senate handles Supreme Court appointments. And all of those rights are important uh, for a lot of reasons, but the one I want to focus on right now uh, is that they're important because they have to do with fundamental human freedoms. So even if you believe that a fetus uh, is a person from the moment of conception, which I certainly do not, uh, the idea that another human being should be forced uh, to share her body with one for nine months to keep it alive uh, is a absurd invasion of freedom. Uh, and it's telling that as Judith Jarvis Thompson points out, uh, important 20th century philosopher in her classic paper, A Defense of Abortion, that with men, there is absolutely nothing that we're asked to do to preserve another person's life that's anywhere near as invasive in that. In fact, even ways that we could preserve somebody else's life they're not really invasive at all. We're generally not legally required to do. In the paper, Thompson mentions Kitty Genovese, who uh, people believed at the time, I think this has since been debunked, and it's turned out that several people did try to help her, but the story that was going around at the time was that 38 people had watched Kitty Genovese uh, being attacked from their balconies in New York, and nobody had tried to save her. Uh, and Thompson points out in the paper that if that had been true, um, none of the people who watched and didn't help would have even been legally liable for that, right? Even just picking up the phone, right? I guess I was gesturing as if you were reaching for a cell phone from your pocket, which is anachronistic, but going to your landline and calling the cops, even that level of effort would not be legally required. Uh, so if you nevertheless think that women should be required to share their bodies uh, against their will for nine months uh, with an unplanned pregnancy, that really seems like you're reducing women to the status of walking incubators. That's a freedom issue. That cared that that matters to me quite a bit. Uh, and I wanted to show you guys before we bring Big Waz on um, a video that I'd done for Jacobin about this topic uh, because oftentimes people have this idea that the socialist left only cares about equality and maybe it's libertarians or, you know, uh, traditional, you know, or even traditionalist conservatives who care about freedom. And I think that that's completely wrong. And in the video, I explain why I think that's wrong. So uh, we're going to watch that. And then we are going to talk 
uh, to Big Waz. Socialists care about economic equality. In fact, one way that people often think about the debate about capitalism and socialism is that socialists care more about equality than we do about freedom, and defenders of capitalism care more about freedom than they do about equality. But that's just wrong. Socialists object to rampant inequality precisely because we care about freedom. To see the point, we need to start by separating at least three different kinds of equality. One is moral and legal equality, the idea that every human being has the same innate importance and should have the same rights as every other human being. That's something that liberals believe, even libertarians say they believe that, socialists certainly believe it. Another is equality in distribution, whether one person has a bigger share of society's resources than another. Finally, there's the whole question of equality or inequality in abilities. A common view is that it's ridiculous to think that we can ever have equality in distribution because we don't have equality in natural talents. Some people are going to have more than other people because some people are going to use their superior talents to earn more than other people. And who could object to that? Even Karl Marx says in the critique of the Gotha program that if a society compensates workers on the basis of their contributions, some people are going to get a bigger share than others because, quote, one man is superior to another physically or mentally and supplies more labor in the same time. In fact, sounding a little bit like Ayn Rand, he says a couple sentences later that individuals are only individuals if they are unequal, presumably meaning unequal in their talents, unequal in how they live their lives, and so on. So if even Marx acknowledged that much, why do socialists care about equality and distribution? First, let's make a distinction. We don't object to any inequality and distribution at all. Sometimes it might be necessary in any society to give some people more than others as an incentive. For example, if there's some job that no one wants to do, it might be totally reasonable for the citizens of a socialist society to collectively and democratically decide to attract applicants by giving the people who do that job a slightly greater share of society's resources. In fact, those collective and democratic decisions might very well lead to inequalities that would be the opposite of a very familiar kind of inequality that we have right now. Under capitalism, the people with the dirtiest, most unpleasant jobs, the people with so-called essential jobs, often tend to be paid less than people with the kind of jobs where you can just get sent home with an employer-provided laptop to stay safe during a pandemic. In a society where no one had to take essential jobs out of desperation, you'd have to compensate those workers more to incentivize taking more tedious or more dangerous work. Inequalities are also fine if they arise from different life choices made without unreasonable economic pressures forced in everyone's hand. If John earns more than Jake because Jake chooses to work less so he can have more time to spend with his family or more time to spend writing poetry, that's not necessarily objectionable. Inequalities that are actually an expression of freely undertaken choices without coercion uh, aren't innately objectionable. The problem with free marketeers like Ayn Rand is that they think choices made under capitalism are meaningfully free. Socialists don't want some all-powerful bureaucracy making sure that no one ever has a little bit more like anyone else. When I think of this caricature of socialism, 
I often think about Robert De Niro's uh, character, Aeth Rothstein, in the movie Casino, uh, where Rothstein storms into the kitchen of his casino to yell at the chef because some of the muffins have more blueberries in them than others. When he insists that there be exactly the same number of blueberries in every muffin, the chef asks, do you know how long that would take? But that doesn't mean that we need to have CEOs who make 400 times the salary of an average worker. You don't get inequalities on that scale just from setting up socially necessary incentives. You don't get it from some people just working harder than others. You get it when most people have no realistic choice except to go to work for a company where they have no democratic input into setting up pay scales. In other words, that kind of inequality in distribution is something that you only get when you start with a severe inequality of power. And that brings us back to freedom. Because we think that every human being is equally important and equally deserves to have basic rights, we care about human freedom. The most important kind of freedom is freedom from domination. And when some people have dramatically smaller shares of society's resources than others, the have-nots have little choice in practice but to go to work for the haves at terms that are set by the haves. Contrast this to the kind of socialism that's easiest to imagine coming about in even the relatively near future, a kind where markets still exist in some areas, but the division of society into workers and business owners has ended because some private companies have been nationalized and the rest have been reorganized as worker-controlled firms. Whatever pay scales exist in those firms almost certainly wouldn't be perfectly equal and that exactly as many blueberries in every muffin kind of way. There would doubtless still be differences in income. But you wouldn't have some people with the kind of wealth that Jeff Bezos has and some people scraping by like the workers in his warehouses. Under socialism, we wouldn't have a ruling class on top and an exploited class underneath. We'd have equal democratic citizenship extended into the economic sphere. And that's a kind of equality worth fighting for if you care about freedom. And that really is the point to my mind, right? I don't actually care with regard to the Amy Goodman quip we, clip we watched earlier, uh, whether Amy Coney Barrett's uh, views about subjects like abortion stem from her Catholicism uh, or just uh, listening to too much Rush Limbaugh uh, or, uh, or from... Uh, she's really convinced by this Scalian textualist arguments. None of that's interesting to me, right? The only thing that I care about is that it's a disgusting assault on human rights and should, if at all possible, be stopped. Uh, I'm now joined by Wazni Lambre, uh, a.k.a. Big Waz from uh, Woke Bros and many other places. How are you doing today? What's up, Ben? Thank you for having me. I'm good. I'm actually on a family vacation but happy to be checking in with you. I took a break from the pool and, and the Mai Tais, and, and I'm here. I made it for you guys. I'm very jealous. Where are you vacationing? Um, Palm Springs, um, near my girlfriend and her two sisters. Well, she has a twin sister and an older sister. They're both married with children, so we brought the family out, got a rented a house in Palm Springs and enjoying ourselves. Yeah, that, that sounds really nice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not too shabby, I assure you. Nice. Uh, so uh, in between the Mai Tais by the pool, uh, I assume you've been following the news about uh, uh, Amy Cody Barrett uh, and, uh, and the Supreme Court. Any initial thoughts about that? 
Uh, we talked about this on Woke Bros just a couple of days ago. She seemed to be the leading candidate. Um, you know, again, I think the stuff that's getting the headlines is the abortion stuff and, you know, reproductive rights stuff, which, again, that's extremely important. Um, but don't get it twisted. She's completely on board with the extremely corporatist agenda of the Republican Party at large, like Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham, outside of maybe bombing the shit out of people overseas, the only unifying sort of ethos of the Republican establishment when it comes to the people who actually set the agenda and make the rules, it's corporate greed, corporate avarice. And so don't get that twisted either. She's completely on board with that agenda. Yeah, and, and that's kind of why I said when I was wrapping up the, the opening monologue uh, before you came on, uh, that to me, all of this talk about like, okay, how much of her views on something like abortion comes out of her religious beliefs, you know, how, how much of it uh, is, is just like a legal opinion that has nothing to do with that. That doesn't really matter to me very much. Uh, and uh, part of the reason why is, look, I mean, take the religion out of it. Like, it's, she's not, uh, you know, the Pope isn't telling these people to, uh, to support, uh, you know, weakening labor unions and, and, and weakening the regulatory whoa, whoa, state. Whoa, ben, man, as a former Catholic, watch your tone, brother. <laughs> I, I, did, I did 12 years in Catholic school, my boy. Watch how you talk about Francis now. <laughs> Papa yeah. Francis. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, Francis, credit where credit's due, is like no, way better than any of these conservative oh, Catholic goodness. judges when my it comes goodness. to things like labor and economics. Oh, my goodness. Incredible. Like, he, you know, again, he's about as liberal as a pope probably is allowed to. <laughs> be in um, the year of our Lord 2020, but he's been very progressive on economic issues, on hunger, on poverty, 100%. Yeah, and so it's not like, it seems like the the problem isn't that these people, well, like Scalia before her, you know, or or like her now, or, you know, like some of the others, right? Like, you know, the problem's not really that they're Catholics. In fact, uh, even on kind of hot button issues, there are things that the Catholic church says, uh, like clearly like, you know, Catholic church is against the death penalty. None of these people are ever going to rule to, uh, to make the death penalty. Of course unconstitutional. Not. And, and more importantly, I think Ben, that a lot yeah. of people don't understand is that the rank and file Catholic skews way more liberal mm-hmm. than just your, basically any of the popular religions out there, the popular sort of, you know, mm-hmm. sex of Christianity out in America. Like, Catholic, like re- people who go to Mass every single Sunday tend to be way more liberal than, obviously, Antonin Scalia is. That's another thing. And that's what I always found funny about uh, just the, the, the concept of a conservative Catholic because growing up in New York City and going to Catholic schools my whole life, um, just the concept, it just never made sense. These people never talked to us about hell. Like the concept that we would be going to hell as mm-hmm. school children, that never came up. It was like, no, of course you're going to heaven. Of course Jesus loves you. Of course you're going to do the right thing. You guys are great people. Um, so this reactionary sort of, sector of Catholicism is not something I've ever actually personally been exposed to. So it always makes me look at it like, this is weird, you know? Yeah, right. I mean, look, I, I, I tend to think that people in, uh, who subscribe to, to every religion 
are very good at like picking the parts they like and uh, and ignoring the parts they don't like, and uh, and that you know that certainly applies to lots of uh, of liberal Catholics. It also applies to your Scalia's and your uh, Amy uh, Cody Barrett's. Uh, and again, like abortion might be a place where their religious views and, and their politics converge, but then like all the stuff about being anti-union, being anti-regulation, right? You know, that's, that's not the, that's not the Catholic church. That's just the no. Republican party. Right. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I find it, I, I mean, I find the whole thing, like actually I find a lot of the ways that people are talking about this frustrating. Um, I, I think there's still this like weird obsession that Democrats have with the norms, like, you know, like, oh, like the, you know, like you have to, you know, just the informal ways that things have always been done are like upheld as if they were sacred in themselves. So like you had this argument that, um, you know, that when, uh, you know, when Mitch McConnell didn't let, uh, didn't let uh, Merrick Garland get a hearing that it was, you know, that, oh, they were like stealing that seat from, from, uh, from Merrick Garland. It's like, no, the Republicans just understand how power works. Yep. <laughs> like, which it, it would, and, yeah. and I would argue they haven't really been too enamored of the norms since Gingrich became a celebrity. Once mm-hmm. he got a celebrity for being a complete and utter shithead, it, that became popular, right? And of course, right-wing radio sort of became emergent in the 80s and then the 90s. It just took off. Like, the, it's all of a piece. This, like, this idea that you would go in and just completely ignore the niceties. That's, yeah. They're not nice. Their constituents aren't nice. They don't want nice. They, so I don't understand why you would expect anything nice to come from that party. Like, what, like if they could show me the examples of these guys doing the sort of ceremonial stuff that used to happen in Congress back when, you know, they were arguing over whether I was three-fifths of a human or not. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I want people to show me where this was the case. I, I just don't see it. Yeah, yeah, right, absolutely. Uh, and, and it's also, like, I don't know that I'd actually prefer somebody who's trying to take away basic rights, trying to, like, make it easier for um, you know, Jeff Bezos to, I don't know, require that his employees give him blood donations, you know, whatever. <laughs> right. like, I, I don't know. DNA I don't know that it's genetically engineered to box stuff the fastest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Right. It's like, I don't know that it actually matters to me whether the person who's doing that is polite, like in a, in a weird way, I think right. I'd actually prefer it if they weren't right. You know, it's like, just, just right. be, you know, just be honest about it. Right. Like I, I, I don't need, um, like I don't need the nice window dressing, um, you know, while, while you're doing those things. So like in a way, I mean, like with Trump, I mean, God, like at least there's truth in advertising, right. You know, that there's, there's like very little pretense, um, that, you know, that in, in the Trump era, right. I mean, there's just very little pretense that the Republicans are anything but what they are. Which is hilarious, which, which that's why I find it not even hilarious, just ridiculous that they would expect this party like what but wait lindsey graham you said to for us to use your words against you aren't to have you no shame lindsey graham it's like no this is the gutless shameless party man they called ted cruz's wife ugly on yeah, Don, national well, tv donald trump read off uh lindsey graham's phone number at a rally <laughs> 
like, like he literally, like he was mad at him during the primaries. So he, so he made his phone number. He doxed you, bro. Yeah. Like there, there's no shame. So that's why it's, and again, I'm, I might be the wrong person because I am biased in my utter yeah. just disgust and contempt for the Chuck Schumers of the world. Mm, yeah. It's just like, shut up, Chuck Schumer. Do something, man. You know what I mean? Throw some skit sand in the gears. You know what I mean? Like, muck it up. Gummy the works. Like, yeah, do think, I, I don't, I don't why do you think he's not? Why do you think he's not doing it? Ultimately, I don't think they have a huge problem with this. Mm. Um, and by they, I mean the corporatist establishment democratic wing of the party. Um, I don't think they have a problem with corporate overreach. I don't think they give a fuck about consumer or worker rights. I don't think they ultimately really care that much. They know they're supposed to be seen to be pretending to care about the little guy. Right. But ideologically, we know Schumer and Pelosi don't actually care. Like, they don't actually identify with people who make nine bucks an hour. Right. They're like, I think, they, they, and there's no other way to view it. Right. And, and I don't want to get controversial or racial here, but let's just say Chuck Schumer thought something really dire might be happening to Israel right. behind this. He'd be behaving much differently. And I know this because I've seen him go against the Dems on Israel, go nuclear against his own party on Israel. Right. Because that's something he cares about. I'm just saying I've, I, there are examples of Chuck Schumer showing what he cares about. I don't think he gives a damn about this. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that I think that somebody like like Chuck Schumer has yeah some pretty some pretty right wing um, you <laughs> Man, know tendencies. Pro, you know, yeah, and certainly on something like Israel Palestine, where I mean, whatever the entire spectrum is very bad, right? You know, there's there's no uh, you know there are no U.S. senators who uh, you know are going to like show up. I mean, you know, like nobody's ever going to be on the floor of the U.S. Senate you know, with like, I don't know, like a Palestinian flag lapel or something, right? Like that <laughs> no, happen, no, right? no, you know? no, no. So it's like the whole no, spectrum no, no. is bad, right? But, right. Uh, but like probably like, actually probably the person, um, you know, showing that it's not a, uh, you know, like it's not purely about ethnic or religious affiliation, you know, probably the person who's in the Senate, who's best on it is Bernie Sanders, you know, that like yep. he would at least, he would at least make some noises, you know, during, during the primaries about, hey, they you know, Palestinians are human beings and this is like really screwed right. up, you know, what's happening. Right. That's controversial, um, Ben. That's <laughs> yeah. controversial. Hezbollah and uh, what are you talking about? Fuck that. You know, you know <laughs> yeah, yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean that, like it really is, like it's, it's gotten, like it's so bad, right? We're starting from such a miserable uh, starting point that it actually is a little bit controversial <laughs> to, uh, to say that, right? You know, that uh, kind, of, kind of the way it was controversial um, you know, when, uh, when Hillary was talking about how, uh, Henry Kissinger was her good friend and, you know, an advisor, uh, and, and, and Bernie would like occasionally bring up like the coups in Latin America. And, you know, and you know, another thing that folks need to realize as well, when it comes to the abortion argument, both Democrat, both Republicans and specifically the power center in the democratic party. And you might be saying, you might could call me cynical or you could say that, you know, they deserve a little bit more of a benefit of the doubt when it comes to reproductive rights 
um, these people are filthy rich. If they ever really actually banned abortion, I'm talking about somebody like Mitch McConnell, we know does not give a fuck about abortion, right? You know he's not moved by that issue for real. But guess what? He knows in his heart of hearts if push came to shove, if Chuck Schumer, if push came to shove, he could put one of his loved ones and mistresses on a private plane to Canada. (laughs) Boom, quick, abortion done. Right? Like, and they know that. They know this. You know, and that's why I think you know the issues that they really care about. It's it's usually the stuff that affects the donor class, the ruling class of society. That's just straight up and down. Like we no, have no, mainstream that's... politicians who aren't like that, and we can name them Bernie, Ilyana Omar, AOC, right. and then maybe uh Sherrod Brown, right? Like we have yeah. a handful who go yeah. out and they make their brand about normal people, but for the most part, man, these people don't care. Yeah, no, that's right. Uh, and and I think actually that example about Sherrod Brown really shows like what a like how slim the pickings are there, right? Because like if you're grading on the curve, you have to grade on to like make this determination. Then sure, Brown goes in because like there's so few people who do. But like, I don't think he was even a co-sponsor of Medicare for All, right? Like that's right. like that, right. that, that's right, right. That, that's how bad it is, right? <laughs> that this thing that like literally should be uh the uh the the least the least controversial um like like the mildest social democratic reform uh like actually just this morning right before before i did the episode uh i was being interviewed for this um you know actually ironically right you brought up israel israeli newspaper uh haaretz and uh and and uh, and one of the reporters while we were talking about this was like oh yeah no that's that's crazy i can't imagine you know, like anybody, you know, because of course they have national health insurance there, right? They, you know, that it's like, you know, that, and they were like, yeah, and like our prime minister is basically a fascist, but he's not going to like come out and say we should abolish, you know, national health care, you know, because like obviously he would never win another election right. uh, if he did that. But even that, right, even having sort of a normal first world health care system is considered to be this like really radical out there thing that like, up until Bernie in 2016, no one was talking about it. And it was really striking this year in the primaries because there was a minute, like in late 2019, when all of the, the cynical hacks who were getting ready to run for president, your Mayor Pete's, right, your Kamala's, all these people um, were saying, oh, yeah, no, sure, I support Medicare for all. So they were like, all right, that's the way the wind is blowing. That's yep. fine. I'll, I'll co-sign this. And then, like, six weeks into the primaries, they'd all given up on it. Right. And, you know, that's – it's so funny. I think Kamala is very instructive in this way in the sense that I think she is a bit more opportunistic is Mm -hmm. the word I guess I'll use of a politician where she did come out for Medicare for all because she felt like the wind was blowing that way. But I think she noticed that she didn't actually have – the sort of credentials as a progressive to get any traction within that faction of the democratic voter base. And so she reversed course and said, hold on, I'm a centrist. Let me run in the centrist lane. And so that's what she did. Right. Um, I think, and you know, that's the fight that we're fighting within the party right now. Right. I I think the Republicans is, it's kind of interesting in the sense that the crazies, the fringe of, gotten their hands on the levers of power at this point. They're not just the people who go out and 
are the only animating vo- um, voice of republicanism, which is essentially deregulation, corporatism, um, you know, all of the, the stuff that they really care about. There's no actual broad constituency for that. Right. Like, yo, let's deregulate every business. Like, if you ask somebody who's struggling <laughs> to pay this, they're like, what? I don't even, like, I, I don't think about that on a day-to-day, right? So yeah, right. the animating force in that party is actually taking control and taking power. Whereas with us, you know, we're in the process of trying to achieve that, you know, and that's how you can get Kamala to come out for Medicare for all and then reverse course. But what I wanted to say, Ben, is, you know, yeah. I think what I think people should think about when these politicians are coming out and stumping for, say, Obamacare and saying this is just the greatest thing that we can do. They're basically saying we need to continue to ensure that people get to make money off of healthcare. Right. Like that's what they're saying. They're not saying it out loud, but they, that's essentially what's driving it. It's like no, they're business interests here. It's a market. It's great. All markets are just fucking great. Then don't you know that? <laughs> yeah, well, I remember when uh, Obama was first rolling out Obamacare, um, he said in one of his early speeches, look, if we, were, um, if we were starting over, you know, from scratch, then sure, single payer would be great. But, you know, and then he never really explained, okay, but wait a second, why can't we do that now, right? I mean, it was, it was just like he kind of tossed off that line as a little concession to the base. Sure, that would be nice, right? Look at me, my heart's in the right place but here's what we have to do. And there was never an explanation of why you couldn't just do that now. And of course the, the real ex- explanation, right, is that, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, the Obamacare uh, did some good things, got rid of the pre-existing condition ban, there was some Medicaid expansion, but basically uh, it was a, um, a massive giveaway to, to the health insurance companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the funniest thing about this is if you remember the 2016 primary debates, uh, sorry, uh, the 2008 primary debates with uh, Hillary and Obama, uh, in 2008, uh, Hillary was the one who was saying that uh, we should have a mandate after uh, everybody. And then, uh, and then Obama a couple times in debates said, yeah, I don't think that's much of a reform. Uh, you know, health insurance companies are, don't really mind when you make everybody legally buy their product. Uh, and then, of course, pretty much immediately, right, after, after taking office, you know, he, he reversed on that, right? But, uh, but that is, like, I think that's a sign, like, that's, if nothing else, it really shows you how thoroughly um, these, uh, these corporate interests, uh, you know, control... Um, you know, well, both parties, obviously, at least in their dominant, you know, wings, right, that uh, that having any kind of health insurance reform at all, the only way to get all these centrist Democrats aboard, on board with that uh, was to say, don't worry, though, right, like, like this will actually be good for the big health insurance companies. We'll give them all these new customers. Yeah, and it's important. It's important to talk about 08. I think it's always going to be important to talk about 08 when it comes to campaigns, specifically this year. Because, and I think a lot of us fell into this trap, myself included, there was this feeling that Barry was a bit of a radical, Mm -hmm. really lefty guy, essentially 
because he's black. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I, I, and I'm telling you, I was guilty of it too. There was just this sense, you, you just felt it. You just knew this guy was going to do something revolutionary because he didn't look like everybody else. Right. When realistically, if you looked at his credentials, you know, um, when he was in Chicago community organizing, why wasn't he union organizing? Right. Right? right. <laughs> he, you know, um, he did come from Harvard and these elite institutions. And, and guess what? Once he freaking got elected, all he did was empower people from elite institutions. People, he's like, come on. I, I mean, I'm from Harvard. I'm into big ideas, solving things incrementally, of course. <laughs> of course, I'm going to get my boy Geithner in there. Of course, Larry Summers is cool. I mean, these guys are like me. They went to the schools. They're the smartest people. They know everything. You know, so I think it's it's very instructive, 08. And I think it's, I think, honestly, it's why Kamala couldn't get traction there in the prim- um, primary. Is It was one of those, fool me once, shame on. <laughs> you fool me, fool me twice, can't fool me again. You know, the George W. Bush thing. Um, but, but I think that's, I think people have woken up to it. And I think, we are yeah. very slowly getting the kinds of people that you and I were more are more aligned with politically. Yeah, and I mean, look, I mean, I remember that uh, pretty early in the primaries this year, uh, our uh, late brother Michael Brooks uh, told me it's going to come down to to Biden and Bernie, right? You know that like because yeah. because those are those are the real options, right? And I think that goes to what you're saying about like, you know, fool me once, right? you know, whatever they, however Bush twisted up that, that right. line, right? you know, that, uh, because Biden wasn't really pretending, right? You know, like, like no. he, he, you know, he wasn't like rebranding himself as some kind of woke semi-leftist, right? You know, he was just like, yep, this is what you're getting, right? At least we'll go back to normal. I'm going to get in there and do nothing, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he literally like, said the words, nothing will fundamentally change. <laughs> I don't yeah. want to do anything. I just want you guys to, because, and you know what's, what gets underrated in all of this, Ben, is the power in making people feel like they can just go about their lives and know that the country is just going. Right? It's almost like you give somebody the keys and you fall asleep in the passenger seat. Like, you're going to take me home. You know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah. No, it, it's, well, it's, that, that's totally it, right? I mean, like, that's that's why it came down to to Biden and Bernie. And then when, you know, then, like, when the other centrist dropped out, you know, it was Biden, right? That, like, because obviously, like, Bernie represented actual change and and Biden wasn't pretending. He wasn't ambiguous. He wasn't, like, doing the thing that the rest of the candidates were doing where they were trying to somehow maneuver to some point in between. And, you know, I think most people can no, see that. No, he was just saying, I'm not Trump. Yeah, I'm not Trump. I'll go back to, you remember back when the country wasn't all on fire? Okay, that's what I'm offering you, right? You know, that, that, that we can just go back to normal. Um, and that, the thing is, and this, by the way, is why I think it's really naive when I hear some some leftists saying, okay, well, um, you know, if Trump wins, uh, you know, we'll we'll just, you know, whatever, we can have a do-over in four years or something that uh that no, after four years of Trump, that longing by Democratic voters to go back to normal was always was already powerful enough uh to give us Biden, right, as as the nominee. 
What do you think it's going to be like after eight years of Trump? Oh, I mean, you know, it can go, it can go either way because I think the reason why I brought up the GOP earlier and about how the fringe has become insurgent and taken over, part of that is running who they just consider to be milk toast um, Republicans like McCain, like Romney, right? Like your perfect set, like they were told by the rulers, you nominate these guys, this is the only way you're going to win. If you, if you nominate the guys that you guys actually want and like and speak directly to you, you're going to lose, right? And they gave them McCain, and they gave them Romney, and they got their asses kicked. And not only did they get their asses kicked, they got their asses kicked by a Negro. Right. <laughs> so it became, it became this thing of like, why the fuck would we nominate Jeb now? Why do we need Marco Rubio who actually likes Mexicans? Why, why, why would we do that? No, we're going to do what we want this time. Yeah, well, I remember after 2012, uh, the Republicans actually did, what is it, they call it the autopsy? The autopsy, yes, of course. They said, yo, we could probably get Mexicans on religious stuff, conservative stuff. We could get Latin people on so many things. We should probably try to do that. <laughs> and then it was like, no, their base was like, no, 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 not on my watch. Yeah, no, we are going to do Donald no Trump. No Chili Verde on my watch. <laughs> We're going to keep eating these Idaho potatoes, Ben. <laughs> Not on my watch. <laughs> yeah, no, no, sir. It's, it's going to be corn on the cob in this party. <laughs> Get the hell out of here. Trying to put salsa on it. You crazy. Yeah. And that's and I think that's what happened. So I think something similar can happen um, on the left. Or excuse, mm. I, I, I'm I'm trying to get better about calling Democrats the left because they're yeah, not, <laughs> you know. Um, but I think with more diligence, with more targeted races within the Congress, especially, you know, you see stuff like Jamal Bowman, um, and you know, sort of the left being more targeted in the Dems that we get to kick out. I think power needs to be acquired slowly but surely on the left. And I think you might could get, you know, a plurality of people within the constituency, the, the coalition that's just like, look, we keep running these, you know, corporate-ass Dems and it doesn't work. Why don't we try to get people excited this time? Why don't we offer people something this time? Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, absolutely. I want to switch gears a little in the last, you know, 15 minutes uh, that, that we're talking uh, and uh, ask you uh, a little bit about you and, and about the uh, the podcast that you do. So um, obviously uh, for um, you had uh, had co-hosted uh, Woke Bros with, uh, with Michael Brooks um, and then later on, also Nando. Uh, so, uh, so do you want to tell me a little bit about that that podcast and how you guys yeah. got started in the first place? Absolutely. So, me and Mike became friends. Shoot, man, probably around 2015. Mm. Um, I started. I was. I was. I, be, I became. A, I had found Majority Report um, via Chris Taze's show. Um, I know some people on the left hate Hayes and hate MSNBC, which is understandable, but I actually think he's a great reporter. I think he's the best of whatever you're going to get on yeah. the major um, 
freaking channels. Anyway, right, Sam was sure. on there. So I was like, oh, let me check out his YouTube show. I like Sam because, like, Sam on MSNBC is like I – don't, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like somebody coming to your dinner table and putting his dirty boots on it, right? Like, <laughs> Sam is like a flaming lefty on MSNBC, right? So I was right. interested in that. And so I caught majority and I was, and I enjoyed the show and I caught a Michael Monday. And so I was like, man, who is this dude? This dude is great. Right. So of course I become a fan of Mike. Mm. And one day I'm um, listening to majority of Michael Monday and he does one of his infamous um, nation of Islam, Barack Obama jokes, (laughs) which is genius on like a thousand levels, just fucking genius. Just, Cause like I had just started becoming politically awakened at the time too. And you know, when you get a sense of what right wingers thought of Obama versus who the guy actually is, like (laughs) he is literally a glass of milk y'all, you know, and, and, and like that disconnect and that Michael could tap into it and just explain the absurdity of that position. Um, I just thought it was genius. So I did something that I never do. I reached out to him on Twitter, and I was like, yo, that fucking joke was genius. And, you know, at the time, I had sort of just started out in my sports media stuff, and he knew that, and he was like, oh, that's cool. And so we connected because we were both in New York City at the time. So we connected. um, We got beers and shit in Brooklyn and became friends, and we always became friends. And and we stayed, we remained friends, uh, you know, throughout the duration of that time. And so, of course, he, ta- he tells me he's going to start his own venture eventually, TNBS. I, I remember the freaking outline that he had of the type of show it was going to be, what he was going to offer the people on Patreon, like all of the different shit. Like he had this shit beautifully laid out. I, w- I remember reading it and being like, bruh, this is going to be so fucking successful. Like this is incredible. And... um. And so, you know, that happened, and me and him had always wanted to do something. And as you know, Ben, because you were Mm -hmm. a fan of Mike's and a friend of his, they get into the nitty-gritty, into the Mm -hmm. weeds of things on TMBS. You know, like, they get into some hardcore theory type of stuff, right? Um, And the idea was like, yo, we want to do something that's a little bit more approachable, attainable, to somebody who doesn't really have the facility with politics that a person like Mike or you might have. And so we developed the Woke Bros just as a concept. Like, you know, I already had gotten a job with The Athletic doing the sports thing, but my company, Count the Dings, we were still doing culture stuff, pop culture stuff. And me always having an interest in politics, I was like, I'm, I want to do an offshoot, a political offshoot show just to keep the people in our orbit who are mainly sports focused, you know, movies, TV focused, who are interested in politics, just keep them updated on what's going on with our worldview, right? Which is a worldview, obviously, you share. It's about normal working people, not people with seven degrees, not people, not to, not that I don't love eggheads. Trust me, I love y'all too. Don't get it twisted. Yeah, yeah but that's but that's that's not who we're trying to. Uh, that's whose, not whose what lives it's about. We're focused Which, on right, yeah. right? Uh, because we we all think that people's lives can definitely be made materially better. You know, 
than what we got going on right now. And so that's why we started Woke Bros. And that's why that was the whole idea of the name. It was like the concept of making fun of wokeness, making fun yeah. of bro culture. Like it was just like that. And that was Mike, you know, yeah. like he, he could understand, you know, why maybe some people on the left might be misguided and get, get distracted by stupid little shiny objects and how people can be boneheaded out in America just at large and you know he was in tune with all of those things and that's why we did the show and then of course he brings nando on who i never had a relationship with nando i met him in la because we happen to be panelists on mike's live show Mm, and before that mike um he took me nando and anna out for dinner the night before because we were going to be um helping him with the show and that's when i met anna who obviously I was a fan of already because she is extremely talented, just incredibly awesome person. And I met Nando at that dinner. And then later on, Mike had the idea of bringing Nando onto Woke Bros, which I was like, fuck it. I mean, of course. And then, of course, Nando comes on, and he's literally one of my favorite people that I've ever worked with, collaborated with in my entire life. And that's all because of the introduction Mike made. You know, and just talking to Nando... You know, which I'm sure you've gotten a chance to talk to him mm-hmm. plenty of times. He's about all of the same shit we're about for the exact same reasons, right? Um, and so, yeah, I, I owe a debt of gratitude to Mike, not just for introducing me and bringing me into this sort of world and this idea of trying to spread this message, but just making me smarter, you know? Like, just making me think. And by smarter, it doesn't mean, like, oh, he, like, you know, he made my brain work differently. No, introducing me to just ideas that you just might not have never considered, you know, Um, and just doing it in such a way that people can understand and can feel it. I just think that was his gift, his his ability to communicate, just a master communicator. Oh, yeah. no, Incredible, you know, and so, you know, I miss him every day. And, yeah, that's the story. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, he he was better at that than – you know, it's about anybody else I can think of on the left. Uh, you know, I, was, I went back and uh, and watched his uh, Lafayette College uh, lecture. Oh, so good! A, a little while ago, and it's so good, and, it, and it's so clear, and, and it's funny, you know, because it's Michael, and it's and and he and the way and like the Q and A, you have all these like students who are asking him, you know, f- some fairly annoying college Democrat kinds of questions. Yeah, but, like uh-huh. it would be like really easy for him to just sort of. Um, to just kind of like perform, like putting them down. Right. And then like mm-hmm. whatever his fans would like when they saw it later, but that's not what he's doing. Right. Like he's, he's like, you can tell he's, you know, maybe making fun of him a little bit around the edges, but like, he's really like honing in on like how he can like explain things to these kids in ways that'll mean something to them that like will intersect with their worldview uh, and not just tell them that they're wrong. And yeah, no, he was amazing about that. And yeah, I'm I'm definitely there with you. I mean, he certainly, you know, when when I when I met him, uh, you know, my uh, you know my book was uh, you know was gonna I'd come out. You know, it was like several months before that, and like uh, you know, he talked about getting me on on a show, and all I thought, you know, I mean, we went out for um, you know that first, you know, was at a conference, you know, where where we met, and uh, we went out for you know, for drinks, uh, in the afternoon with, with our editor, Doug Lane. And then, you know, and like by the end of that conversation, he was like, Oh yeah, brother, you know, I should have you on the show, whatever. But like all I ever thought that would happen is like, I'd be on once or twice, you know, to talk about the book. Right. And, and then 
he had this idea. It was completely, it was completely his idea. You know, I hadn't like envisioned anything like that about like, you know, my doing this weekly segment, you know, that I started doing on the show and, um, and yeah, I mean, got, you know, was lucky enough to, you know, get to know, you know, get to know him very well and, you know, stay several times, you know, when, when I, you know, be in Brooklyn, you know, crash with him and Theodora, you know, at, uh, at their, um, apartment and, uh, you know, help him work on his book. And, uh, and I think, I mean, obviously he is an amazing human being and yeah, no, I, two months later, I still, you know, there's still some part of me that thinks I can like text him and he'll text me back, you know, right. but, um, but yeah, and I definitely, I definitely learned, uh, to, um, like, he definitely changed the way I look at some of the stuff, even though, even though like what I thought was the, was, you know, like mostly what I thought about politics, you know, what I already thought, you know, when, when I met him, but, uh, but I mean, just, just kind of the way that he uh, just kind of the intuition that he had to have about some of the stuff, the way that he'd like present things and think about them and, and, and like, it, it, it just, it was so appealing and, and it's so, um, you know, whatever. I mean, for better or for worse, I mean, it's completely changed, you know, how I approach all of this stuff, you know, in, you know, since like the couple of years, uh, a couple of years since getting to know him. So, um, so anyway, I'm, I'm really happy, you know, I mean, that's, it, it, it's really great to finally talk to you. Um, that's same uh, mutual brother same same because you know I, I i think the dot connecting is important you know um i think it's important to because in any space like like for example like i'm in nba media right and there's a way that that can get very territorial and cliquish and petty and all of those things that, you know, people are ambitious and people want to be the best and people want to get paid and people want to do this. And, you know, the collaborative communal nature of just loving the NBA as a sport and as a culture oftentimes gets lost. And I think the same thing can happen in the space of, say, lefty media, independent Mm. media, right? Like the mission is the same, right? We want to see normal people get justice, specifically economic justice. People live lives with dignity. That's what we care about the most. And we should try to avoid the petty squabbles, the territorial stuff, the anything that goes against building community, building a coalition, getting people on the same page, you know. Um, I, and I can make a confession here, like even throughout the pandemic, I'm not going to lie, I've become sort of disillusioned with race speak, right? Because a lot of it for me, I just feel like the capitalists have us right where they want us. They just got everybody fighting for what, right? And so I've become disillusioned with, obviously, obviously I want racial justice for black people. I'm fucking black, you know what I mean? But I've become disillusioned with the way that fight gets sort of, carried into our discourse as people who are trying to make gains, you know? And I'm not going to lie, like, Mike sort of helped me with that. And Mike was, you know, he was as big into racial justice as possible. But anybody can see that sort of – and I'm not just talking about black people doing it. I'm talking about 
all shades of liberals who just go super duper woke on me. And I'm just like, yo, fam, like, I promise you, I, I, I love myself. I love being black. I love black people. Like, nothing you could do or say to me is going to change that. But, yo, relax. Like, normal people <laughs> don't talk like this. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, we got to be able to have conversations with non-pointy-headed people, people. <laughs> like, let's work on that. Let's let's build on that, you know. And, and so I think it's important for us, you know, and I feel like I'm rambling, but I just think it's important for us to – Keep the main thing the main thing. That's a that's an yeah. Eric Spolstraism right there. Keep no, the main I, thing the main thing. Abs- absolutely, you know, a hundred percent. And and really, I mean, let's also, I mean, I think there's like a really like basic way to put some of the some of the point here, right? Which is just that what is the main way, right? Not certainly not the only way, right? Because like there are like a thousand ways that this has happened, right? But like what has been the main way that like racial stratification and hierarchy has played out in the U S well, it's that black people are way more likely to live in poverty, right? Like that, that, that's the main yes. way that that's happened. Right. And the, any solution to that, right. Has got to go through getting everybody who's living under those conditions. Right. To yes. See. And, and, and that's what, that's what I think the, the project should be is, Getting people to understand, people who aren't black to understand that, yes, while it may feel, seem appealing to want to believe and feel that just waking up white every day makes you amazing. And I get it. I get the appeal of that. It's seductive to just like, to be able to be like, I get to access superiority, awesomeness, just by virtue of the fact that I wake up white every day. I get that, but let's not get it twisted. Those people who sold you that idea left your ass behind. They didn't come through on the promise. They have not made your lives fundamentally better than black people. Matter of fact, you get to see it in action. Fancy black people on your TV every single day. The promise was that you were going to be given that access. You were going to be given all of that um, in exchange for giving them the power to do it. And they never delivered on it for you. And our mission should be to explain that to people, to get that through to people that they did not b- deliver. Not that you were a fool for wanting it. Not that you're a bad person and you're racist, which you might be in. Blah, 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 blah. All of those fucking things. You know what, man? I don't give a fuck if somebody gets to be racist in Kentucky so long as there are people in Harlem who get to have a livable wage get to live in a in a freaking apartment or whatever that isn't dilapidated and all of that like i'm sorry that's a decent trade-off for me you go ahead feel feel like you are god's gift to this green earth so long as normal people get to live in dignity that's the trade-off i'm sorry i'm willing to make (laughs) y'all yeah fair enough uh before i let you go was um so there is there is something completely unrelated that I that uh, that that I want to I want to bring up at the uh, at the very end here, uh, which is that um, uh, Nando uh, is going to come back, also Mike Racine, uh, sometime in the next month or two, and do a a bonus episode of uh, where we're uh, we're just going to talk about the Sopranos. Uh, do you want to uh, okay. join for that? 
Absolutely. 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 Um, so I kind of, I have actually three favorite shows of all time. I'm going to be very basic about The Sopranos and The Wire. That's basic. Mm-hmm. I know. The third one is actually The Young Pope because, like I said, I grew up Catholic and, like, the, what they're doing, explaining that shit, explaining Catholicism is just genius work. But um, yeah. I always waffle between The Wire and The Sopranos just as, like, actually, obviously both are genius works for different reasons. Um, but The Sopranos is so fucking funny that show is so funny yes there's guns and drugs and strippers and craziness and obviously there's this high-minded stuff when it comes to just america and society and 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 just you know therapy and all of that kind of stuff which i love too but it's so funny and so absolutely i i I, i'll be happy to come on and talk sopranos anytime and just so you know i'm an uncle june guy that's my favorite sopranos (laughs) character of all time just the ornery just (laughs) agreed just that attitude just speaks to me so much it's hilarious nice all right thank you so much wise this has been fantastic um and uh talk to you again very soon Thanks for having me, y'all. Um, make sure you guys subscribe to the Black Opinions Matter feed every Thursday. Me and Nando drop woke bros. Um, that's on every single podcast platform. Uh, salute to Shahid, who's on the line right now. I'm sure you guys are going to kill it. Be good, y'all. Take it easy. All right. Thank Bye, you y'all. so much. Bye. All right. That was Wazni Lombre, Big Waz from the Woke Bros, many other places. Uh, I am uh, now joined uh, by the man who I sincerely hope uh, will be uh, the next congressman representing uh, San Francisco, Shahid Buttar. Right on. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. Shahid is how you say it, but yeah, so, sorry, so excited. Sorry, Shahid. Shahid. My mistake, yes. Oh, it's all good. No worries. If I had a nickel for every time somebody did that, I'd be as wealthy as Nancy Pelosi, but I'll, uh... <laughs> that's a good. That's a good line. Uh, yeah. Um, which I, I should really know because because I've I've been uh, supporting you for uh, for quite some time actually I had uh, in fact uh, back in the beginning of uh, February uh, there was a uh, campaign commercial uh, for you on on YouTube that has a uh, that I had a, a very brief uh, speaking line in uh, as I remember as well that as, yeah uh-huh. as well as our friend uh, Michael Brooks and. Um, and in fact, uh, on the day that uh, Bernie Sanders ended uh, his uh, his 2020 campaign, or I think he suspended initially, uh, and and so with great sadness, I ended my uh, my monthly recurring donation to uh, to the Sanders campaign, and I, I set one up for you the same day. Thank you so uh, much for for your support. I remember that day very vividly because I was shedding literal tears. You know, I saw my own future shift in that moment because I signed up to be one of his lieutenants and breathe into being this brighter future. And I'm down for the alternative. I mean, what I'm now auditioning for is the opportunity to try to stave off the worst parts of a fascist future. And I'm here for that. You know, as a Muslim immigrant, I've spent plenty of time resisting uh, the opportunity to build something brighter uh, with Bernie was something that drew me into the race. The need to fight Trump is frankly what keeps me in it. Um, but I, yeah, that when, when Bernie suspended his campaign, I felt uh the closest analog I have to this is 
the moment when Obi-Wan Kenobi on the Millennium Falcon feels the destruction of Alderaan. And I felt millions of voices in the indefinite future crying out at once, you know, I mean, it pains me even to think about now, but so much turned this spring in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. No question about it. Uh, and, and since, you know, we're talking about, about stopping, uh, you know, the worst of Trump and obviously it's a very, uh, it's a particularly bad moment right now. Uh, because as we're speaking, uh, I believe that, uh, in, well, it was supposed to be at, at five, right? So, so a few minutes ago, possibly, unless the press conference is starting late, I believe Trump is right now announcing uh, the appointment of right. Amy Coney Barrett uh, right. to uh, to the Supreme Court. And uh, you know, it doesn't, you know, however much it might be possible for, you know, if if Chuck Schumer was really going to use every procedural trick possible to try to delay it, uh, I don't know if that would work or not. But it doesn't look like it's going to happen. Uh, so it looks like uh, like there is going to be a, a six to three uh, conservative majority on the Supreme Court, and of course, um, you know we're about to have uh, an election uh, where you know and it's it's very difficult, right? Because because uh, so many liberals have cried wolf about this stuff in so many ways, but uh, but the signals that are being sent right now are extremely disturbing, right? Like so, literally, uh, Trump. Uh, just said a couple days ago, he was asked if uh, if he would peacefully leave power uh, if if uh, Biden was elected, and he said, "We'll see." Foreshadowing. So, <clears throat> yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely, right. So, so it does. So, I, th- I think that uh, that the importance uh, of um, stopping you know Trump from getting that second term, if possible, uh, and everything you know, everything that goes with that, right? I think something the left often doesn't have its eye on nearly enough is the uh, uh, National Labor Relations Board appointees, you know, that, that, that Trump, you know, is going to consistently appoint people whose mission in life is to stamp out what's left of organized labor mm-hmm. uh, in, in the United States, right? So so I do actually uh, think that's important. Uh, and so, you know, because I do you know, live in a swing state, I'll, I'll, um, you know, hold my nose and, and, and do what I have to do electorally to, to help make that happen. As I would um, if I lived in a swing state. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But because you live in California, uh, in fact, one, not only, of course, you're not in that position, but also, uh, because California's election laws are unusual. So the top two vote getters in the primary go on the general election ballot, even if they're both Democrats, uh, which means that people in your district, uh, when it comes to the congressional race, don't have to make that kind of choice. They, uh, they, uh, their, their choices are, are Nancy Pelosi and you, uh, which, which would be a wonderful position to be in, frankly, you know, uh, electorally that, uh, that, that you can, that, that you can vote for the things that you care about uh, without worrying um, about, about electing a Republican. Uh, so obviously that's very exciting. And I guess the biggest thing I want to talk to you about today and I know that there are a thousand answers to this question, but let's just start out with the obvious. Why is it so important uh, that if at all possible, Nancy Pelosi is replaced with you? Succinctly because Nancy Pelosi has done everything she can from a policy perspective to pave the road of the right wing and this aspiring fascist tyrant of a president. The demonstrations of so-called resistance, using air quotes here, resistance to Trump have been entirely theatrical, ripping a speech, clapping sideways, which she actually said was not ironic at all, but it meant sincerely, you know, pointing sternly across the table, putting on her sunglasses while wearing a red coat 
it, it's it's not unlike the you know the fawning over Kamala Harris's Timberlands when she gets off the plane. It's like it's just it's like the subversion of Washington by Hollywood and the subversion of policy by celebrity. And I'm not interested in celebrity. I'm very interested in in policy. I've spent 20 years fighting to first help make marriage equality a federal right. I've been fighting to restrain the surveillance state. I've fought against CIA torture. I've worked against police profiling in communities across the country. And on all of those different issues, Nancy Pelosi was on the other side. You yeah. Know? So, yeah. So, so you, you mentioned uh, marriage equality, uh, which, which is a good reminder because uh, the uh, video producer for the show, Forrest, comes from New Paltz. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. Right on. What a small world. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, uh, so, so when I, I told him, you know, that, I, that I'd be interviewing you, uh, he said, oh, yeah, uh, back when, you know, um, our Green Party mayor yep. in, in New Pulse uh, was, uh, was, was performing uh, same-sex weddings, you know, or, you know, and uh, signing off on that. And, of course, it was legally challenged. Uh, Shahid uh, came came to New Paltz, you know, to, uh, to, you know, to work, you know, to work for him legally. Uh, so, uh, so I, I don't want to get off on, on too much of a tangent, but I, th- I think that's like a very, that's a very cool thing about your history. Can you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, it's a fun story, actually. So Jason West is the figure you're describing. He was Time Magazine's person of the year in uh, 2004, uh, elected as the mayor of New Paltz, New York. And I met him at a conference at American University in Washington, D.C. It was the National Conference on Organized Resistance. So an anarchist conference in 2004, and we were each there speaking as artist activists. I organize spoken word artists and hip hop artists. I've been doing that for 20 years. So there's collectives in three different cities that I help pull together. They're all still active. Some of the work of which I'm proudest actually is this, the people coming out of those communities. So I was talking on the panel about that. Jason, before becoming the mayor of his town, uh, worked with Bread and Puppet. Um, uh, it's a, a group in the Northeast that builds like giant street uh, puppets for street actions, ways to illustrate in our resistance some of the themes that we might be trying to raise in policy and, and, and in our communities. And so he was talking about visual art in the street. I was talking about performance art in the street. We bonded on the panel. We had like a chat, as one does with other panelists after the thing, and we traded cards. And he mentioned that he had some constituents who <clears throat> basically uh, were uh, working artists who'd relocated from New York City to the Hudson Valley. Some of them were later in life, uh, people who had effectively survived the AIDS Holocaust of the 80s. And these were people, in some cases, who had uh, relationships that they were concerned, especially about being able to be visited in the hospital by their partners who wouldn't have access to visit them without the recognition that comes with marriage. And at the time, frankly, no one was talking about it. Uh, Gavin Newsom, now the governor of California, at the time the mayor of San Francisco, was a few months after that that he <clears throat> had uh, uh, took the bold step. Uh, he was the first mayor in the country to solemnize same-sex uh, weddings. And Jason moved a few weeks later. And I was very proud to work on that case. For me, it was particularly poignant for maybe two reasons. One, as a Muslim raised in the Midwest, the opportunity to stand for the rights of my gay neighbors. Frankly, before many of my gay neighbors were standing for those rights, I mean, there weren't Democrats in the country standing up for it. I mean, I was ahead of most... Democrats and people look back now and they take it for granted. An entire generation, frankly, takes that right for granted, but we fought for it. And Democrats were not there. And so one was just sort of like, you know, I took a lot of shots in the Muslim community for standing with gay people. And the point was, you know, civil rights are intersectional and intersectionality is a principle that I think 
many people have come to understand in the years since I had an opportunity to experience it in praxis, let's say. Uh, and then that second point was just how slow the careerists were to embrace rights. And this is always the case. You know, Nancy Pelosi, to her credit, did show up to try to uh, challenge the federal DOMA legislation, but she basically regarded marriage equality as a state's rights issue for years until, frankly, effectively after the fact, the Oberfeld decision, I think was in 20, uh, I'm going to get my dates confused. I think it was 2013, maybe 2014. 2014. Uh, that sounds right. And I think Pelosi came to embrace marriage equality at the federal level, not until like 2012, maybe 2011, but very late. And the point here is that the incumbents, the, the generation of incumbents that preceded us have always put their careers before our communities and the future can't take that. There's too much at risk and the skies were blood red at high noon here in San Francisco a few weeks ago. And it just is a very vivid illustration of the policy failures of the preceding paradigm and the need, frankly, for us to embrace some real change. And I'm that, that era of my history is one I don't have a chance often to reflect upon. So thanks for, thanks for bringing it up. I, I wish frankly that more people in San Francisco, Francisco realized it, you know, I talk about it, but you know, it's interesting to me that the, the LGBTQ, the progressive LGBTQ club in San Francisco in, endorsed Pelosi, <laughs> Which I just, you know, I don't even know what to say about that. It's, 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 yeah. it's called the Harvey Milk LGBTQ Democratic Club, and it endorsed a person who funded Trump's concentration camps. And I, and I fought for marriage equality ten years before she did. And you look at that kind of phenomenon of organized groups voting against their own interests, and it is uh, disappointing. Let's say that. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I mean, this is. I mean, I was. I mean. Liberals love to talk about, uh, you know, uh, rural Republicans in Kansas, you know, voting against their own interests, but, yes. uh, but then, uh, then they act like this. Uh, so so I, I guess the, the natural transition there, right, you know, is, is we're talking about your, your work on marriage equality, uh, but, but for a long time after that, right, you're very focused on civil liberties issues. Yeah. So for me, that really started around 2008. Uh, just to fill in the gap in between when I met Jason and did that work, I was actually in private practice at a San Francisco law firm in the firm's DC office. And the other case, the one that the firm had given me when I got there before we pulled in Jason's representation, I was representing two members of the house, uh, Chris Chase and Marty Meehan. They were the bipartisan co-sponsors of the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act of 2003 BICRA. This was the last time Congress tried to take corporate soft money out of elections. Yeah. And we re represented them before the Federal Election Commission. And we won that case before the DC Circuit, right as, at the same time that we lost the New Paltz cases uh, in the New York State Courts. And, and it's interesting, the subsequent history of both of those cases goes in opposite directions. We lost the battle in New Paltz around marriage equality, but then won the war, first in 2011, when the state legislature gave marriage equality to residents of New York State, and then in the Oberfeld decision a few years later, in the campaign finance arena, we won the battle before the DC circuit in 2006, but then the Supreme Court and the Citizens United decision five years later laid waste to that era of my career. So I've, I've won a battle in the courts and lost the broader war. I've lost a battle in the courts and won the broader war. One of the things I take away from that, and it's particularly poignant given the event transpiring as we speak, you know, I'm having another of those moments where I feel millions of people crying out, the Supreme Court uh, any anything that we gain in the courts is ephemeral, and, and frankly, in the in Congress, we can't really trust gains either, because especially with the courts arrayed against us, they will whittle back congressional initiatives that do meet the needs of the American people. It's why the court is so crucial, because it can become a a 
uh, a cr crucial limit on our democracy in a way that could constrain our, and has already long constrained our ability to meet our needs. Uh, and I'm, I'm very concerned about all of it. Yeah. So, uh, so, so I, I guess, uh, you know, I mean, one way, cause I, I think that a lot of people do know this stuff, at least on the left, but I think a lot of people, um, you know, don't, uh, or, or might like lose sight of, of just how deep, right. The divide is, you know, on some of these issues between somebody like you and, and, a corporate centrist, uh, like, uh, like, like Pelosi, um, and uh, and certainly, I think it's it speaks to to the importance uh, of of this race, right? So so we're starting to uh, you know to talk about you know civil liberties and and, and your work on those issues. Uh, and you know, Nancy Pelosi has has been in Congress for a very long time. Actually, when did she start? 1987. And, and if I can, just to yeah. to touch this because I realize I, I missed at least yeah. one part of the answer I meant yeah. to share before. In that time that she's been in Congress since 87, before she became the speaker, she was the ranking member of the House Intelligence Committee. This is the committee that signed off, just like Diane, Diane Feinstein's committee on the Senate side, the Senate Intelligence Committee. Those are the two committees that oversee the national security agencies, the NSA, the CIA. They oversee everything from drone strikes to torture to mass surveillance. These are very much the issues that I spent the last 10 years grappling with. And, and as I've been fighting the Obama administration from the left and then the Trump administration, then before that, the Bush administration. Uh, at, throughout that time, I've seen Nancy Pelosi carrying the Bush administration's water, just like the Obama administration later did. And frankly, I see this demonstrate. It's, it's really interesting at this point in time when, on the one hand, Nancy Pelosi you know, impeached Donald Trump a year ago and about six months ago revived expired surveillance powers from the dead to then hand him and expand his ability to suppress dis domestic dissent. And the inconsistency of even the attempts theatrically to stand for civil liberties in the face of an ongoing onslaught on our rights. And just to be clear, it's not just mass surveillance that could become a key lever of thought police. It's not just torture with impunity. It's not just mass incarceration. It's not just arbitrary police violence deadly, lethal police violence with impunity. It's not just executive secrecy to hide all these things from public view. It's not just coups abroad, likely in, in three different countries in Latin America alone in the last two years. It's not just an ecocide across the Amazon, you know, at the same time that we're having our own domestic catastrophes driven by this preventable climate crisis. It's all of those things, plus a pandemic. I mean, it, 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 it boggles the mind how deep and multifaceted the failure is. And I, and I see that in the human rights and civil liberties arena, particularly a bipartisan offense, I, I am a socialist, I come to these issues very much from the left. And as an immigrant raised in the Midwest, I understand how deeply many conservatives care about these issues. These are, in fact, bipartisan commitments. Our constitutional commitments transcend party lines, which is why I find it especially offensive that the leadership of both corporate political parties have aligned themselves with the executive branch against we, the people of the United States. And I see in our race a referendum as to what kind of government do we want? Do we want it to be a government for, of, and by the people with our elected representatives representing we, the people, or do we want a government for, of, and by corporations as we have had? And we've seen how that worked out for us. And I just would implore anyone in San Francisco who is concerned about the future to lean into the opportunity to change it. If we find ourselves fearful of change because 
it's happening too quickly in our times. I think of FDR here. The only thing we have to fear here is fear itself, because that's what constrains us for making the bold decisions we need to meet the future. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think, as you say, uh, the the fact that uh, where you are in California, you know, you've seen such uh, apocalyptic um, consequences of climate change recently, uh, really, you know, really goes to the point, you know, because the the difference, certainly on that issue, right? I mean, the difference between incrementalism and outright denial is largely aesthetic. That's right. Aesthetic is a great way to put it. And I, I often say that climate de- uh, delay is arguably worse than climate denial from a moral culpability standpoint, because as much as we, I'm, I'm not going to excuse the ignorance of climate mm. denial, denialists or deniers, but climate delayers like Nancy Pelosi, who acknowledge the science and yet still refuse to do anything about it, who sit on their hands in the face of species-threatening calamities. And, you know, I'm glad to see the House pass a measure recently to expand renewable energy, but the scale of the commitments pale relative to the scale of the need, and we need actual action. And Nancy Pelosi, the the most important thing she did in this congressional session with respect to the climate uh, disaster is hamstring the new committee on the climate crisis. She denied it investigative authority, and she denied it policymaking authority. And that's exactly what we need is empowered committees to be developing the very broad-ranging, transformative legislation we need to meet this need of, of, the, of the coming, and the fact, not just the coming, but at hand crisis. One intersection, just to connect some dots, you know, are we, uh, I'm not sure if we did talk about it. It's certainly been on my mind a lot. The eugenics at the concentration camps, mm-hmm. the Trump Pelosi yeah. concentration camps, there's a connection here with the climate crisis. A lot of people don't realize that this, the migrants coming to our southern border in particular, the ones from Central America, are fleeing a drought. It is climate disaster that is driving the migration crisis that is already creating these human rights calamities in the United States. And that's only going to get worse. The water wars are going to displace potentially billions of people. The waves of migration we are seeing now are nothing because large parts of the planet might actually become uninhabitable. And those people are going to need to go somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, right. And, and, yeah, and of course, stuff of course climate change, uh, you know, drove water shortages that helped start the civil war in Syria, which, you know, which, which caused uh, a refugee, you know, like a large wave of refugees there. As you say, it could be just a very small uh, taste, right, you know, of, of what's coming up. Uh, but earlier you referred to the kind of sweeping legislative solutions that we do need on, on climate change. And, this is something uh, that, that's really worth underlining. Somebody reminds me in chat of um, uh, of Nancy Pelosi's description of the Green New Deal as the uh, as I believe her phrase was the Green Dream or whatever. The Green New Dream or whatever. Nobody knows what's in it, but they're still for it, right? That was her line. And you know, this is this is the same figure who t- talks about the squad as a handful of votes. The same figure who, you know, recommits blithely to capitalism, even as entire generations are trying to shrug off its yoke. Uh, It's the same figure who, you know, remains beholden to effectively every corporate interest you can fathom. Certainly the fossil fuel and energy industries before the climate justice community. And, you know, this is someone who I think the challenge I have as a constituent of Nancy Pelosi's, who is also a professional advocate, is that I see up close in slow motion, a lot of what she does. And I, I pay too much attention to be fooled by the theater of it. And, and I read her, I recognize the disparity between the rhetoric and the reality and her rhetoric's great. 
if she was the figure that she's constructed to be by media sources, I'd be all for her. But at the same time that she claims to be fighting this criminal president, she's paving his road. And that is simply unacceptable. No one's career, no party's interests, nothing is as nothing is, is worth more than the truth there. You know, we need people in these seats in Congress. And I, you know, I, I certainly hope that Trump is not the president in the next term and I will do everything I can as a citizen. You know, I'll be in the street yeah. to try to keep that from happening. And if he, through whatever machinations, stays in the White House, we need people in Congress who will actually stand up to him. And the most powerful thing we as a people could do is to make sure that Nancy Pelosi is not there to hold the gavel in the next session. I would be very eager to vote for Barbara Lee to serve as the next Speaker of the House. She's done all the things, frankly, that Nancy Pelosi tries to claim credit for doing without having done when it mattered. And Barbara Lee shows up when it matters. She's the person who will stand against the executive branch. She's the one who will try to stop an illegal war. She'll try to stop a surveillance scheme. She'll stand up for a marginalized community. She's done it for decades. And that's the kind of figure that we need leading the Democratic Party at a time like this. And it's not going to happen as long as Nancy Pelosi remains in the House. And I'm eager, as the first Democrat in 30 years, to face her in a November election to do my small part in defending our democracy. Yeah, so so we talked. You talked about uh, stopping illegal wars, and that's there is a dot I want to connect there to something you said earlier, because I think a uh, a phrase that you used that I I could imagine somebody watching or listening to this and um, and and saying, well, hold on, right? What do you what do you mean there? Is the was the Trump Pelosi concentration camps? Yes. Uh, but of course, that's literally true, right? I mean, the the, the Democrats control the the House of Representatives. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the House, uh, and that that means that they control the purse strings uh, that that fund things like concentration camps, or for that matter, you want to talk about uh, you know illegal wars uh, that at the very time that you know of course conservative media you know um, you know thought that she was a progressive devil, right? You know, but that the uh, that uh, during you know during the Bush era, right? Any time, right? Uh, Pelosi and the Democrats could have cut off funding to the war, and they didn't, right? Anytime, right now, they could cut off funding to ICE and the concentration camps, and they don't do it. Or the DHS goon squads, or the NSA surveillance apparatus, or the CIA torture, drone strike, assassination, national security crisis creation machine. You know, there's any number of things that we do that are ham-fisted, belligerent, ignorant, frankly stupid, wastes of resources that kill Americans at the end of the day. Uh, I, 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 I don't, I mean, let's go in on this. I think particularly, and I only reference this because I just mentioned the CIA, there are so many things that that agency has gotten away with and, and, and its budget has only continued to increase. No one even knows what it is because the bottom line budget number is somehow classified. I mean, that is just such a glaring re- revelation of corruption to me. And this is the same agency that trained Al Qaeda because it was convenient at the time to fight the Soviets. We called them the Mujahideen then. This is the same agency that ran crack cocaine into the United States and ended up killing U.S. police officers, prompting both the paramilitarization of police and the metastasis of mass incarceration. This is the same agency that has assassinated U.S. citizens and their children based on speech alone while those people's families were in courts trying to vindicate their rights. That's the, that's the criminal intelligence agency, and this is the same agency that Nancy Pelosi has done everything she can to insulate. There is a continuing cover-up into CIA human rights abuses. There is a trove of evidence amounting to thousands of photos, video evidence, 
of, of offenses as severe as outright murder in CIA custody of detainees with never seen the light of day because the person who helped facilitate the cover-up got promoted to lead the agency with Nancy Pelosi's support. Everything that the Trump administration has done, he might have signed the orders, but it was Nancy Pelosi signing the checks. Yeah, that's that's a really good way to put it. Uh, and it is amazing, right, as you go through that that list of horrors, you know, from this agency, which... I mean that that's that's just a remarkable thing that that in a democracy you'd have a government agency whose budget is secret, uh, but uh, that that list of horrors, right? You know, uh, and so many of those things are are at this point just um, just acknowledged uh, that uh, uh, you know I, I I think about like uh, you know there's a movie called American Made from from three years ago uh, that was like a mainstream Hollywood movie. Tom Cruise was in it, right? That okay. uh, uh, that that was about the way that the uh, the CIA was entangled uh, with drug running in the eighties, and it wasn't even controversial when it came out. It was just like a nothing. It's like, oh yeah, no, that's a thing that happened, <laughs> you know, in, in, in the eighties. Sure, right? There there was some, you know, there was some cocaine, whatever, right? Yeah, we tortured um, some folks. Let's look yeah. forward to not that. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, right, right. Uh, and and even in uh, another of the examples that you just gave uh, in that litany of horrors, um, the uh, the drone assassinations, uh, at least two that I can think of, of American citizens, uh, they're uh, you know at the time, of course, um, you know they don't announce we're trying to kill this guy, we're trying to kill that guy, you know, generally speaking. But that was also acknowledged afterwards. Obama gave a speech justifying it. So, and Eric Holder wrote a whole analysis as the attorney general trying to give the, the order, the uh, legal authority to the order. I have a weird, I don't know, it's, I don't know exactly how to describe this, but there's a, there is a Obama drone strike lawyer, a lawyer from the Office of Legal Counsel and the Justice Department who wrote that memo authorizing the use of drone strikes to target Americans. He was nominated for a seat and is now serving, has a lifetime appointment to the First Circuit Court of Appeals. I uh, alienated a bunch of my former uh, supporters and allies in Washington because I came out against that nomination. This was an Obama Justice Department person who was, like John Yoo in the Bush administration, authoring legal opinions that basically legalized human rights abuses. And you know, I got 60,000 people on a petition uh, to, to block his nomination. And this was a nomination that many people on the left supported because it was Obama's guy. And like, that's kind of my concern with judicial nominations. You know, it's poignant to reflect upon this given the announcement happening now, but you know, people are very rightfully concerned about this court and the Supreme court in particular, our courts have been a shit show for a generation. I mean, the, the Supreme court hasn't been legitimately composed since 2000 in the year 2000, when they decided Bush versus Gore, the court contrived its future composition, right? That's, that's sort of a circular, a constitutional circularity. You might say, I mean, court's been illegitimately composed ever since. But that aside, like the, when Democrats have had the opportunity to appoint justices and judges, they frankly have not met the needs of the moment at all. I spent three years in Washington when I worked at the American Constitution Society for Law and Policy. It was a network founded in the wake of the Bush versus Gore decision to try to restore balance to the law and fight the influence, particularly of the Federalist Society that was created uh, in the 70s. It pursuant to a very explicit strategy by the right wing, Justice Powell's infamous memo about basically baking industrial interests into jurisprudence. And so ACS was founded after the Bush versus Gore decision in 2000, 2001, actually, to, to, to counter this influence. I worked on the senior staff for three years. We built 
a pipeline of progressive jurists, potential nominees for the next Democratic president to appoint. And instead, President Obama, like President Clinton before him, they appointed prosecutors and corporate lawyers. They tried to make sure there were some diverse prosecutors and corporate lawyers in the bunch, and then they called it a day. And that tokenism, while actively ducking into the right-wing takeover of our courts, I mean, there hasn't been a liberal appointee, like an actual progressive appointee to the court, really since Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I mean, Kagan, Sotomayor, Breyer, they're all, frankly, like middle, they're moderates relative to the actual spectrum of legal discourse. They're not leftists. They're, yeah, they're like mainstream yeah, I mean, liberals. Yeah. I mean, look, even, even, uh, even Ginsburg, uh, you know, signed off on, uh, on some rulings that, uh, that weakened, um, you know, probable cause, you know, for, uh, for searches. Uh, so, you know, that, I mean, you can make relative judgments, right? I, I would certainly rather have uh, a, a a mediocre, you know, um, centrist judge, you know, than uh, than than somebody, you know, who wants to take away abortion rights and collective bargaining rights. But uh, but if we're gonna if we're gonna keep our eye on the ball there, uh, none of these people uh, are are really the kind of judges who would want, which is is going to be incredibly important because obviously right now we're we're in a you know, we're we're in a period of uh, of defeat, right? As you say, right? You know, there's the uh, you know since the defeat of the Bernie Sanders campaign, you know, for for president, right? The prospects for um, for building up uh, a democratic socialist, uh, you know, alternative, you know, to what we've got right now. You know, we're we're in a much trickier situation than we were. Uh, yeah. But if that if that ever reverses itself in the future, right? If if we have um, if we have a, um, you know, we were in a situation where we had House and Senate majorities or president who, who really wanted to enact a, a, a Bernie-style social democratic agenda, uh, get Medicare for all, get a Green New Deal, never mind any more radical socialist horizons than I might have than that, right? Then um, obviously the courts, almost regardless of, of the partisan composition, would be a massive obstacle uh, to, to to that agenda, right? I mean, I I really don't see any way that the uh, that the Supreme Court um, really, even if by some miracle, you know, this this current nomination doesn't go through, which I, you know I think it will, right? But I mean, like, but even if it didn't, right? I think that I have a very hard time seeing how the courts don't act to try to obstruct that agenda in every way they can, right? I, I believe in their creativity that they'll find ways to to decide that all of these things are unconstitutional. Uh, so how how can we counteract that, right? Like 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 what is yeah. the what is the end run or the strategy for for dealing with that inevitable judicial obstruction look like? Gotcha. I actually wrote a proposal around this ten years ago. And just to you know to your point, first of all, the the, the courts have been long obstructionist with respect to allowing we the people to embrace a brighter future. People forget, you know, we're one of the objects of. Uh, of, of progressive aspiration right now is the Green New Deal. It's an homage, among other things, to the Green, to the New Deal, the first New Deal right. that President FDR uh, uh, put forward. And a lot of Americans don't realize that the Supreme Court, for the better part of a generation, stood in the way and struck down time and time again every effort uh, through federal legislation to achieve any kind of redistribution of resources. And they elevated to a constitutional principle, which is to say taking off the legislative table they, they constructed, they contrived this principle of property rights and tried to impose a laissez-faire economic policy through the courts. 
which is profoundly anti-democratic, of course, because these people aren't elected and they're not accountable in any way to the people. So to allow judges to be effectuating policy preferences is a very dangerous thing, and it's inherent in the exercise, but it was very overt at the time. And then one of the things that FDR did to compel the court uh, to, to, to heal, as it were, and to respect democracy was threatening to expand justices, which would have weakened the influence of the sitting justices. It would have compromised the independence of the institution. And, and it, it, there was, people might have heard the time, the switch in time that sw- saved the nine. It's a phrase that many people don't know where it came from. And it was a switch by one of the justices in the West Coast Parish Hotel case, 1937, maybe, that put an end to this era, the Lochner era, and then unleashed an era of progressive social legislation that achieved things like the five-day work week, social security, uh, workplace protection so that people could get compensated if they get injured on the job. Like basic worker rights came about as a result of this fight. Now today, a lot of people learning from the FDR era, and I think learning the wrong lessons, have proposed to expand the court. I don't think it's a bad idea to threaten to expand the court should the Senate proceed with confirming a third Trump nominee. I don't think it's a good idea to actually expand the court. I think there's a better way to release our future jurisprudence from the stranglehold and shackle of the past. That is specifically to end judicial life tenure. Ro Khanna has recently come out in support of this proposal. I'm very excited for that. I re- Andrew Yang has also endorsed it. I wrote an article proposing it in 2010. Uh, the first person I'd seen discuss it was Jack Balkan at Yale Law School, and it makes a lot of sense. We want judges and justices to be insulated from political pressure. Right. But we don't want them to impose a generation-spanning limit on the ability of the political branches to respond to the consensus at a policy level of we, the people of the United States. And so one of the things we need to do is to ensure that the incentive to nominate younger justices so that they will then go on to exercise enormous influence over their lifetimes. You can see that strategy particularly at play in the most recent nominees. It was true of Clarence Thomas when they nominated him in 91. It's particularly true of Justice Roberts, Justice Gorsuch. I can't even say justice and the word Kavanaugh together without right, grimacing, right. you know. Um, but you know, each of them reflect this playbook. And 18-year staggered terms would diminish that incentive It would ensure that justices have plenty of time on the bench to develop institutional expertise. It would ensure predictability in the process of vacancies and confirmations and nominations instead of it just being like a random, you know, everybody drop everything and, you know, run in all directions now for the next few weeks, which is what happens every time a vacancy happens. And they become these hyper-politicized footballs. None of that has to happen. It can be a very different process. And, And frankly, the idea of life tenure makes no damn sense anyway. This is a democracy. We have an anti-nobility clause in the Constitution, and we pretend that an entire branch should serve for life? I mean, it's just, it's preposterous. It flies in the face of every one of our norms. It would not take a constitutional amendment to effectuate that. We could do that through legislation. And the particular import, if we do stagger 18-year terms for Supreme Court justices, the very first thing that would happen is get Clarence Thomas off the bench. And that's something that I hope people concerned about the court's future responding to it with, I think the ham fisted uh, somewhat um, blunt instrument of adding justices. I hope they can appreciate the opportunity to guard the independence of the court by just cycling off some of the longer serving justices. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's really good. That's uh, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think we've got to start thinking about, 
you know, whether that's your proposal, you know, uh, you know, wh- whatever it is, right? I mean, like, I, I think, I think any any left strategy for implementing these important reforms that doesn't include some sort of uh, some way to block uh, the the current power of these lifetime justices uh, to uh, to override um, progressive legislation, you know, is is just not you know is is not a serious strategy, right? You have to have, say say something about that. Um, I guess the last uh, the last thing that that I wanted to to ask you about, uh, I, I don't want to go I don't want to go deep into this because I think it's already been covered very well elsewhere. Um, I think that, for example, if people watch the uh, interview you did with uh, with Katie Halper and Matt Taibbi on, uh, on Useful Idiots, uh, it's very well covered there. It's it's a very deep dive into this, and and it's it's um, you know I think any question you might have on the, about this right is answered there, right? But there, there's a uh, but I, I'm sure that, that there's somebody who's watching or, or, or listening to this, you know, who, who has heard, uh, you know, about the, the accusations that were made against you. And, of course, unfortunately, uh, the way these things often work is that the original accusation is very splashy. It gets a lot of attention. Uh, and the later debunking of the accusation uh, is very quiet. Right? It, it, not a lot of people, um, you know, like, like many fewer people are aware of uh, of the later uh, refutation uh, than than of the initial accusation itself, uh, so I think at this point that stuff has uh, has been you know fairly thoroughly refuted. Uh, I have um, again you know I point people to that useful idiots interview or the one you do with Sam Cedar on the Majority Report for you know a shorter version of it. Uh, but I I think one thing that really disappointed me in all this uh, you know is. As as a member of uh, you know as a proud member of the Democratic Socialists of America, you know I was I was, I was very disappointed to see uh, DSA you know abandoning you you know without hearing all of the facts, uh, and uh, and and I think that between what happened to you and what happened to Alex Morse, uh, who uh, who who was um, who was accused well there were some extremely vague accusations against Morse, which is actually something the cases have in common. Uh, and, um, and a lot of people who I think maybe should have known better took it seriously, right? That it was obviously, uh, his, his, you know, supporters of his opponent, you know, who in that case, you know, were the main people pushing this stuff, but, uh, but lots of people on the left, you know, uh, just, just assumed right in their initial reactions that, uh, that, you know, where there's smoke, there must be fire, right? That there, that if there's an accusation, there must be guilt. Uh, and, I guess my question for you about this uh, would be how can we as a movement get smarter about this stuff? Because it seems to me that if we just conflate accusation with guilt every time we, we run a candidate uh, who, who endangers, you know, uh, an establishment figure, you know, uh, we're always going to be vulnerable to this, right? You know, like, 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 like if what we're saying is, we're always going to believe anything that anybody says about this, no matter what, and not seriously look into it, then why wouldn't our political opponents just constantly use that against us? So I, I guess I was just wondering in, in the last minutes we have together, if, if you could reflect a little bit on that situation and on what we might learn from these incidents. Thank you for raising it. I, I do take the issues at stake in the accusations towards me very seriously while I do know that the accusations were all false. The Intercept actually just yesterday published uh, a, a, a more extensive, effective correction of the hit piece that 
they published in July. And it exposes a great many things, including any number of places where the interests of my critics reveal themselves. And, you know, it's presented in the press as women and workers, uh, you know, speaking out against a bad boss and all kinds of other things. You know, they, they constructed half a dozen different smears against me. They claimed falsely that I had a pattern of inappropriate behavior with volunteers. I have no such, there's no pattern, there's no incident, nothing beyond rumors that they themselves constructed. They claimed that uh, I'd harassed someone that they then found who then opened the door for them to bring their concerns about my campaign strategy into the press. Uh, that was ultimately refuted. I mean, this is somebody who's accused me of things, all kinds of things for years, accused other people of all kinds of things for years, someone who themselves has plenty of, uh, I, I don't want to get into it. It's, uh, yeah. I, I don't want to punch back at my accusers. Just the, I, I, it amazed me that anybody, frankly, based on the facts, leapt to such judgments. And as you know, the person falsely accused, particularly a person of color, it's really hard for me to look at this through any other lens than the racial prejudgment. Like there's nothing else to explain it. Why, for instance, every local press outlet would publish uncorroborated stories where the only people they'd cite were working together. Like there was no independent validation or verification. There's no fact checking. Just publish the thing. Hope it's true. And then when the evidence emerged, you know, within days, two months ago, you know, and it took yesterday as the first time a press outlet, you know, aside from the humanist report, covered these texts. And even still, the intercept, you know, misrepresents them. The texts show my former colleagues, a white man in particular, reaching out to my volunteers, a white woman in particular, encouraging her to say that I had done something inappropriate when she in the text is very explicit that no such thing happened. And she's quite explicit. She says, I'm not going to jump on your smear campaign bandwagon. She says, I'm disgusted by the, by the slandering that's happening here. She says, now you know the truth. You have to tell everyone else. And what my colleagues did was go to the press and claim this series of lies. And, you know, in terms of how we can insulate ourselves against this uh, problem as a, as a society, I'd say the first thing we have to do is recognize the difference between punching up and punching down. The Me Too movement in my case, was used as a sword and a shield by my accusers, a sword to you know, presumptively cast guilt and a shield to avoid any and evade any questions about their own credibility. And, and the Me Too movement gained prominence by punching up. Powerful, wealthy, particularly white men were brought down who had long been predators. Attacking, you know, anytime we construct lies about people, we can abandon any pretense of punching up. And when we're particularly punching down, at an immigrant challenging the leading corporate Democrat in the House. And, you know, my former colleagues came from the political establishment here in San Francisco. So this was the establishment arraying itself to protect itself. And my, you know, critics have been rewarded by the local establishment, or in some cases, the national establishment for participating, uh, you know, in this, this campaign, this, this effort. Uh, we, we should look at the difference between punching up and punching down. And I think we also should be committed to process. Due process is a constitutional norm in the criminal justice system for a reason. Frankly, because the state, when it accuses people, often gets it wrong. Similarly, yeah, I mean, this, 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 this standard that, uh, that accusation, you know, is the same as guilt or, 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 or they probably wouldn't be accused if they hadn't done something, right, you know, is, is something that uh, we're normally used to hearing for apologists for um, aggressive policing and mass incarceration and uh, and frankly right I mean like you were fighting for civil liberties in the Bush era 
uh, that uh, a lot of that fight was about the importance of um, of, of due process of, of the rights of defendants, not you know not conflating uh, accusation with guilt, and so it seems like we really need to find a way uh, to uh, to internalize that norm uh, or some version of it. Right? I mean, I know it's a very different context than court of law, but like there, there has to be some version of a norm for performing right. some kind of investigation. At least enough to just hear witnesses and evidence. Like, it doesn't have to be so complicated, you know? I mean, DSASF, I was so deeply disappointed in that network because they did any, you know, there were, I can't just blame it on white people. I mean, this was racism effectuated by, you know, a diverse set of actors. And and the idea of leaping to conclusions without considering evidence and affirmatively denying opportunities to review it and and invite witnesses to speak to make decisions based on what your friends say instead of the facts is frankly how every incident of racial terror across the South happened. And I'm grateful that it wasn't as bad for me. You know, I'm still standing. Uh, I'm still here to talk about it. But what happened to my campaign here with DSA's active participation, now I'll just quote one of my supporters. She's an Afro-Latina grandmother, a Navy veteran. Her name's Gloria Berry. Uh, she's been very outspoken about what's gone on here, and she's been entirely silenced by the local press. The Intercept finally quoted her yesterday. Um, she publicly posted after one of the DSA meetings that she felt like she just left a KKK rally. And, and it breaks my heart how well the shoe fit. I mean, the hateful things that people said. One of my accusers said, quote, brown men rape was the quote in a DSA meeting about a proposal to rescind their endorsement about me. They wrote the proposal knowing it was false. And then we have this conversation and then it's in the press and, you know, it's just like such an act of unethical irresponsibility. And I might've been the target, but at the end of the day, the victim is the movement. And all I can do is advocate for the policies that we need as effectively as I can hope that my city is uh, sophisticated enough to recognize the choices between us uh, before us and to choose the intelligent option that will preserve an opportunity for the future and, and hope that people dissuaded or distracted by these accusations care more about the facts or the future than they do about virtue signaling. And yeah. to the extent that's true. I'm looking forward to representing San Francisco in the next session of Congress. Well, absolutely. I really hope that you do. Um, you know, you, you have, uh, you know, you have all of my support. I would, I would really urge anybody uh, in your district who's watching or, or listening to this uh, to, to vote for you, to volunteer, donate in the final stretch. Uh, this, this is extraordinarily, uh, this is extraordinarily important. Uh, and, and even obviously you're very much an underdog here, but, uh, but if, uh, but not only would it obviously be a beautiful thing to replace Nancy Pelosi uh, with, with a principal democratic socialist, uh, but just, just think about what it says if, uh, if somebody like Pelosi can um, act the way that, that, that she has uh, in, you know, just even just focus on the last few years, never mind her whole history before then. Uh, continuing, as you say, to write these checks to the Trump administration to do everything that it does, uh, and and if if the people who who should be the base for an opposition to that right aren't voting for an alternative, uh, and uh, you know when presented with the chance because of California's electoral system, right, you know that that really sends a message that uh, we're fine with that. 
and and so I, I hope that that's not sent. Uh, I, I I hope um, that well, obviously, what I'd most hope for is that you win. But you know, but even if that doesn't happen, uh, I hope. Uh, that uh, that there there is a big enough share of the vote to to send like a really serious mes- you know message of dissatisfaction. Uh, Shahid, thank you so much uh, for uh, for coming on the show today. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me on, Ben. All right. All right. Thanks. That was Shahid Buttar, who's running to replace Nancy Pelosi in the House of Representatives. Uh, we are now joined, of course, uh, by comrade, friend, uh, Weekly Outlaws and Revolutionaries contributor, David Griscom. How are you doing today, brother? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, Texas is up by three points against Texas Tech right now. And uh, for all my Longhorn fans out there, it's 5.56 p.m. Eastern and OU still sucks. Very happy to see them go down against Kansas State earlier today. So I'm in a good mood right now. <laughs> nice. Uh, well, I will uh, switch over, of course, now that, uh, now that Griscom's in the house. So I'll switch from beer to whiskey. Um, get the, uh, you know, it's not amazing whiskey, but we are getting ready to move in a few days. So this is the... Uh, um, so just trying to, you know, to use up what's, uh, what's in the cupboard. So, uh, so this is the maker's mark again. Uh, so nothing wrong with that, you know, nice, solid, smooth, uh, bourbon. Uh, but, uh, but, but speaking of, uh, of nice, solid things, uh, who we, uh, who are we talking about today? What's the, uh, what's the music selection? So today we're talking about Terry Allen. And Terry Allen is one of those artists that I'm really excited to be able to start telling the stories of because, you know, we did the big outlaw country, the big heroes. Terry Allen is one of those guys. He's a musician's musician. The people who are in the scene, especially in Texas and Oklahoma, that part of the world, this is the artist that inspired them to to do what they do. Um, You know, he's somebody who never really had a lot of big commercial success. Not saying that he's a small act or anything like that. Um, But, you know, he didn't really do like big national tours. You know, some of that has to do with record companies, but a lot of that has to do with like him making personal decisions, actually, um, to spend time with his family and just sort of live a normal life. So let me think, because there's so much to start with Terry Allen that it's it's sort of hard. But let me begin for people who don't know about the town, Lubbock, Texas, uh, where Texas Tech is from. that's where Terry Allen is from. And that is a town that it's one of those places. If you go to it, you wonder why people settled there <laughs> because it's right at the end, you know, of the great, uh, you know, like Hill country, yeah. the bottom of the plains, you know, and then obviously the ends of like the Southern pines. And then you hit the beautiful, like Western desert. It's tough. It's the kind of land that makes you believe in God because you are constantly exposed to wind elements, hail, heat. I mean, it gets hit by everything. Um, but there's something about people from there that is really beautiful. 
Uh, and Terry Allen is one of those guys. And so much of Lubbock is in his music, but he's a really interesting singer and an artist compared to a lot of like, so for example, you've got somebody like George Strait, right? Mm. Uh, who maybe mm. one day will do. And he's, you know, he's sure. the king of country music, right? He's the troubadour of like a kind of Texas cowboy experience. Terry Allen doesn't try to play that role, but what he does in his music is actually really capture that part of the world in a beautiful way. And that's why he speaks so well to so many people because he wasn't trying to be anybody but himself. Um, so Terry Allen actually left Lubbock out of high school and lived in Los Angeles for years and years and years um, until he finally came back to Lubbock and then started making some of his most important albums. Before, though, we go into the, the music itself and why it's so mm -hmm. good, I think it's worth also noting one thing about Terry Allen that a lot of people don't know is that he's actually is an incredible artist on his own right. He's a sculptor. He's a uh, illustrator. Um, some of his, some of my favorite sculptures, he has a sculpture that's in Kansas city in their financial district. Um, and it's a businessman standing. Um, and he has this tie like wrapped around his neck, like a, you know, like a hangman's noose and in his mouth is his shoe. So he's got his foot in his mouth. <laughs> um, so he makes these really fascinating sculptures that are very playful and, uh, um, you know, surreal, but I don't know how much message you want to put into them. I definitely would carry some message into them, but they're just very strange, um, pieces that he loves to put in like lived spaces. So like on street corners, there's another really famous one where it's a businessman leaning their head into a building, like their head is completely inside of it. So it's just like their shoulders, you know, as if they transferred into it. So anyways, he's a, like, he's one of these people who he's like a pure artist in the sense that he creates so much. And he always says that he doesn't really find it that different sculpting uh, to writing music, which I don't know. Um, but let me see where to start with. So maybe it's before we get to like the kind of country music stuff that I love so much about him, um, or I guess Texas stuff, I mean. He has a great song um, that he wrote uh, called There Ought to Be a Law Against Sunny California um, that he wrote when he was moving back. From All of his titles are just amazing. Oh, no, they're incredible. And like another thing just I should say to people, I mean, it's hard to t like, how can you talk about music without listening to it? Um, this is just to give people taste, obviously. I think to listen to Terry Allen, he's very much an album artist. Like you need to listen to an album from start to finish. Uh, Juarez um, and Lubbock uh, for everything are two phenomenal places to start. Um, but yeah, you know, he, he, he breaks these amazing songs. So there's a great song called like Cortez sale, which is in Juarez, which is an album that I have right here. Um, and I actually just got recently and it's an amazing um, record, not only musically, but it's filled with his art. Uh, and it comes along with a little booklet filled with like essays and like really cool drawings that he did. I know it's just like, you know, you feel like you're communing, having a conversation with somebody who has such depth, but like, you know, a song like Cortez Sale, which is on Juarez, he juxtaposes like this kind of sort of typical, almost like country folky ballad of like, you know, feeling a little melancholy, like there's rain falling on your car, you know, all these things. And then he does that. And then the next verse will be about Cortez 
um, and the conquering of the Mayan people and like the horror and evil of like the Spanish conquistador like system. And then boom, right back to driving around California and, uh, you know, having a you know glass of water and thinking about the woman who left you. Like he does this kind of juxt, you know, he juxtaposes ideas so well. Um, there's another really fun song called a uh, truckload of art, which I love. It's a made up story, but it's a story about a bunch of uh, Yankee New York, uh, art world people who wanted to humble California um, so they drive, uh, you know, they get a big old uh, RV to take a bunch of fancy art from the Met out to California, um, you know, to show them up. And basically along the way, the art, the truck falls over, burns to the ground in the middle of nowhere, Texas. And it's just like, it'd be a terrible sight if anybody could see it, but there weren't nobody around. I don't know. Just like he's a funny, he's a funny writer and a farty, funny artist. Um, his song, There Ought to Be a Law Against Sunny California, um, you know, it's a song about leaving California, basically when he decided to go back to Lubbock. But what's funny about it is like, yes, he does say, you know, there ought to be a lot of, uh, you know, against uh, sunny California. And remember what Lubbock was versus what Southern California was. <laughs> um, but what's so funny about it is like almost all of the verses in it are actually just about Texas and Lubbock. And he has this line in it that is just so funny about him asking a girl out on a date. Um, and, and, uh, so he says that, and then it says, and I remember her daddy, big as a truck. He said, fuck with me, boy, if you want to fuck. Fuck with me, boy, if you want to fuck. So just like, you know, stories about this kind of, you know, fairly barbaric, you know, wild uh, part of the world that he was from. Um, some really great lines. Another song, Give Me a Ride to Heaven, Boy, which is just about riding these old uh, Texas highways where basically he picks up Jesus Christ on the side of the road. And he's freaking out as Jesus Christ is in the car with him because he has all this beer on the floor of the car. So he's like kicking the beer beneath his feet. And Jesus looks over to him and he says, my friend, I know you must, uh, um, you must think it's odd, but you got nothing to fear about drinking a beer if you share it with the son of God. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm trying, like I I, I put a few of these, another good song where he does something like this too. Um, Amarillo highway. Uh, which is a really great kind of Texas album uh, anthem, in my opinion. But he says, I don't wear no Stetson, but I'm willing to bet, son, that I'm a biggest Texan as you are. There's a girl on her bare feet sleeping in the back seat, and that trunk is full of Pearl and Lone Star. Um, <laughs> just great song. And one last song to shout out, uh, uh, especially since Texas is playing Texas Tech right now. It's one of my favorite songs because it's just so funny. It's called a Great Joe Bob, a regional tragedy. And it's basically the story of this young guy who becomes a running back for Texas Tech. And as he, you know, he's there, he gets, you know, he falls in love with a woman and starts drinking too much, missing practice and, you know, slowly loses his scholarship. And then he becomes like a small time robber and he ends up in the penitentiary. So it's like the great regional tragedy. The great Joe Bob went bad. You know, so like the thing about him is he's just such a great artist, I think. What he does is I think great art, in my opinion, is bringing that uh, like a rich internal voice that so many of us have and bringing that into the world to share with people. Uh, and Terry Allen very much was able to do that and was able to do that in a way, I think, that especially to people from Lubbock or West Texas, places you know that I'm not even particularly familiar with, I think was really a great way of doing that. And when it was like building art, but also building art for people with a, different, a certain experience. Yeah, yeah, I... The Lubbock stuff, by the way, was just making me laugh because um, 
my my good friend uh, Mark Warren, who who's actually quoted in my in my first book, was uh, I went to Texas Tech, and, uh, and so uh, I think uh, I, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to his reaction to this one way or the other. But uh, but in any case, uh, oh, wait before there's one more thing I want to share. Yeah. If that's okay. Yeah, yeah please, because um, it's just so good. Guy Clark, um, who somebody will do soon, one of my favorite Texas songwriters of all time. Him and Terry Allen were best friends, really close friends. And Guy Terry Allen is still with us, but Guy Clark unfortunately just passed away just a few years ago. Um, anyways, you know they were really close friends, and they had a kind of you know funny relationship. They basically make fun of each other all the time. And Guy Clark really said to you know was saying to Terry, he's like, "When I die, I'd like you to do something with your art with my ashes." And Terry Allen, uh, you know, supposedly told him, he says, "All right, I know what I'll do." I'm going to make a big goat and I'm going to stuff your ashes up its ass. <laughs> to watch Guy Clark got a you know good kick out of it. He didn't end up doing that. Um, he ended up putting his ashes in a sculpture of a, uh, of a crow. Um, Cause apparently Guy Clark had this fascination with a windmill, a windmill museum that's out in Lubbock. And I guess some crows made a nest out of barbed wire and Guy Clark would just go to Lubbock all the time and just spend hours looking at this, this Christmas. Um, so anyways, just a sort of sweet story. Um, no, you know, no. Terry Allen's a good man, a beautiful yeah, person, a, worth checking out. Yeah, I, right. I always uh, think of uh, Keith Richards, who uh, apparently, I think he says this in his memoir, that he um, – uh, that he uh, he mixed some uh, some of his his father's ashes uh, up with cocaine and snorted it, uh, <laughs> which, uh, which he says his father would have appreciated. That I don't know what you know I don't know what Keith yeah. Richards' father was like, but uh, but yeah, no that that is that is an amazing story um, about Terry Allen. I love that. Yeah. So. <laughs> Well, uh, thank you so much. What um, I'm, I'm trying to remember is the is next week one of the weeks you'll be gone or no? I think I'll be around next week. Yeah. Okay, you'll be around next week. Uh, do you know yet who you might want to do? Probably Guy Clark, but I'm gonna think about it a little bit. So. Okay. All right. Sounds good, man. And then uh, actually, I, I will tease, even though I'm not a hundred percent sure about the dates just yet. So this might change, but. Uh, but tentatively, uh, we've got um, we're going to have Matthew Sitman, um, who is uh, some people might know as uh, the uh, co-host of the Know Your Enemy podcast, and he's uh, editor of uh, Commonweal, um, and he uh, he wrote uh, a essay in the uh, Great Socialist magazine uh, Dissent uh, called uh, "E Pluribus Country." Uh, about uh, his his love of country music and and the politics of it, so um, so it might be as early as as two episodes from now that uh, that we might be talking to uh, to Matthew and, and of course I'll bring you in to uh, uh, to to that interview. So um, so really looking forward to that. Uh, always love these segments. Uh, thank you so much, brother. Of course, man. Talk to you later. Talk to you later. All right. Uh, before uh, before we go, uh, I did find uh, that uh, Shahid uh, Buttar commercial uh, that uh, that I was talking about uh, earlier. Um, so 
Uh, this was came out in uh, in February. Uh, the the guy who who filmed it um, is this uh, this very uh, talented documentarian Eric Kelly, uh, and he was sitting in uh, a night in January uh, when I was on the Michael Brooks show in studio. Uh, Eric was there uh, to uh, to take some some footage of, of Michael for for this commercial. Uh, he also got a little bit of me. I mean, it for about two seconds. Um, uh, towards uh, towards the end, uh, and since we did have Shade on today, uh, I just wanted to briefly share uh, this commercial, which I think uh, sums up a lot of what's going on with that campaign and a lot of what's at stake in that election. 2020 House Speaker Nancy Pelosi faces a challenger of her own. Shahid Buttar announced his plans to unseat the California Congresswoman. He plans to challenge Pelosi. A constitutional attorney who works at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, a grassroots activist, an artist, and candidate challenging Nancy Pelosi in the Democratic primary, Shahid Buttar. Not only does he support Medicare for all, but he also wants to cut military spending. With the congressional candidate trying to end the way too long rule of corporate queen Nancy Pelosi. I'm not a big fan of Medicare for all. And she's not representing us. She's not. She's representing her interests. She needs to retire. She does. If Hillary Clinton had won, I was ready to go home. She's out of touch with what's really happening. Shahid is authentic, and he cares about people. He will stand up against police brutality. And his fusion of a socialist commitment to justice for everybody is exactly the synthesis that we need right now. It's tireless, brilliant, fearless, and watch out. He's going to surprise a lot of people in this race. He understands average, everyday people. The most effective way to reach somebody is face to face. We need change in 2020. So just so everybody understands, we're not just taking on the Republican Party in Washington, D.C. and the establishment Republicans. We're also taking on the establishment Democrats. And I'm not playing about this. I'm not playing about this. We're going to fight. We're going to fight. He cares about taking care of everybody, making everybody equal. An end of the surveillance state, an end of military spending. We need a representative that really represents San Francisco's values. All right. So, um... I want to take a couple of questions uh, from the Q&A before I go. Uh, make sure that, uh, that if, you, uh, if you have one you want me to get to, just, uh, just stick it in there right now. Uh, before that, I do want to just do the predictable podcaster thing uh, and say that if you are listening to this on um, any of the podcast platforms, please rate or review us uh, on it. Uh, if, uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, please like and subscribe. Uh, and if you like this content, you want to support it, uh, please do take a look at the Patreons. That's patreon.com slash Ben Burgess, B-E-N-B-U-R-G-I-S. Uh, for $5 a month, uh, which is the monthly cost of one overpriced uh, espresso drink at Starbucks, which uh, if you're as paranoid about COVID as I am, you haven't even been, uh, been getting lately. Um, you, uh, you get, there's only, it's a one tier Patreon, uh, and, uh, and what you get for that 
is uh, early access to every single episode uh, of the show. The raw audio and video Zoom recordings go up on the Patreon uh, right away. And, uh, and then uh, the nice edited version goes out into the world as a podcast Sunday night usually. And Monday evening at 7.30 p.m., uh, it premieres on YouTube. So as a, Patreon, as a patron on the Patreon, you get early access. Uh, you also get um, weekly uh, patron essays. So the one, uh, the one this week uh, was a, uh, a debunking of um, an essay debunking some of what a uh, former member of Tony Blair's cabinet uh, had said about the philosophy of Karl and politics of Karl Marx. Uh, and you also get regularly scheduled uh, Discord office hours, is what we call them, uh, group voice chats with patrons. Uh, I don't know that's always going to be this, this often, but lately it's been once a week. Um, and more importantly, uh, the Patreon's not a you know, subscription service you know, for content. Everybody's swimming in free content. I understand that, right? But uh, it's, it's solidarity and it's support uh, for the work that we do, right? Right now, uh, I, I would really like to pay everybody who's involved in the show uh, a, a living wage, um, you know, it's, it's not anybody's only job, but, you know, but there, there are people who are, who are trying to cobble together uh, some of these gigs uh, into, uh, into an income. Uh, and, and right now one of them is, and you know, most of the Patreon uh, is already going towards that. Uh, I would like to, uh, to be able to have this be a much bigger part of what I do. So, uh, so please do uh, think, about, uh, think about joining uh, the Patreon uh, and if you don't, you know, if you can't do that, if you don't have the $5, I understand that. I've, I've been there in the recent past when I was an adjunct, um, where, you know, I, I would often cancel recurring monthly contributions, you know, because money was just getting that tight at the end of the month. Uh, please do, uh, like, and subscribe on the YouTube channel. Please do rate and review us on every podcast platform. Uh, in the Q and A, Shona says, just finished watching Simon Scama's Romantics and Us. Uh, missed out the point that Burns gifted his songs to the people of Scotland. Uh, so uh, not only is it culturally important what it means to be Scottish, uh, but also a sense of owning, uh, not just belonging to that culture. Should culture belong to the people rather than the corporations? I obviously think yes. Uh, the one point I'd add is that I think all culture belongs to all people. Right? I, I've never bought into the idea that uh, culture should be seen as like the collective intellectual property of some particular group of people who are born into a particular race or ethnicity or nation or background. Uh, I think that what we need is the kind of cosmopolitan synthesis that my friend Michael Brooks uh, talked about in the uh, final chapter of his book, Against the Web, uh, where we really support uh, syncretism and cultural mixing and everybody getting to take the best of everything from everybody's culture, um, preferably in uh, the environment of a socialist society where we no longer have some racial or ethnic or cultural uh, groups uh, that are living as impoverished underclasses uh, because of structural factors like what we've got right now. Uh, John Ross says, read Brian Grimm's book, We've Got People, uh, which describes Nancy Pelosi's uh, rise to power, um, also points out her, uh, her opposition, which I talked about with Shahid, I'm sorry, I've been, appointed, I've been supporting the man all year. Uh, I should be able to say his name correctly. Um, and, uh, and there was a question in there about uh, why politicians like Pelosi and Feinstein are so attracted to power. 
uh, why they can't just retire and pe- give people like Shahid his uh, his turn uh, to uh, to serve. Uh, I can't speak to attraction to power. I almost feel like that's something that uh, you need to psychoanalyze, you know, rather than subject uh, to uh, to political analysis. I think it's just a fact uh, that many people are attracted to power, and that the shortest route to power, unfortunately, right now. Uh, is to serve uh, powerful economic interests, uh, and and this the solution to that isn't a uh, isn't a technical or technocratic solution. Uh, the the solution uh, isn't even some reform like term limits. You know, Bernie Sanders has been a law in Congress, you know, one house or another for a very long time, uh, and and he is you know doing what we want. Uh, and uh, and there were other people who, who just showed up who were serving corporate interests. I don't think that can be the solution either. Uh, I think what we need is to build a powerful movement from the bottom up uh, that can exercise enough electoral muscle that when we elect politicians, uh, they know that if they defect from our platform uh, and start uh, and start supporting uh, corporate interests. Uh, or, or even waffle in ways that are the most important to us, there can be electoral consequences. That uh, It's one thing right now that, uh, for example, uh, Democratic Socialists of America, Justice Democrats, uh, can play a certain role uh, in electing uh, some members of Congress. Uh, but right now, you know, a group like DSA is just not powerful enough that it can exact serious consequences, that we can get to the point where we say, hey, um, Right, sure. You know, if 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 one of these members of Congress, you know, who who comes out of uh, the left, uh, does things that we don't like, yeah, I guess we could expel them from DSA for all the good that'll do. Uh, but what we really need to do is get to the point where we have a kind of grassroots working class organization that would have to be much bigger than something like DSA is right now, uh, that would actually have enough organization at the base that it could make credible threats. Don't vote the way we want. Uh, and we're going to support a primary challenger against you next time. I think ultimately uh, that is the, uh, that is the only solution. Uh, and you know, it's, it's a long road from there, but <laughs> to, uh, um, you know, to quote a, uh, a much less classy, uh, you know, musical source than, uh, you know, either of the ones we're talking about today, right? Keith Richards or uh, Terry Allen. Um, you know, the, uh, I always think of the ACDC lyric, right? You know, it's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll, right? It's a long way if you want to build a workers' movement that can actually uh, take power and change society. But I think we, uh, we do need to support even long-shot candidates uh, like Shahid, uh, in uh, in San Francisco, uh, somebody points out in the chat. I should be sure to uh, give a shout out to his website, ShahidForChange.us. Uh, so uh, <laughs> somebody says ACDC is working class rock. Uh, I'll go with that. Uh, I um, I was yes, uh, ain't no fun waiting around to be a millionaire. That's the uh, uh, that's the song. Um, I can't uh, I can't think about them without thinking about a. Uh, a uh, good friend of mine who I don't know if he'd want to be mentioned or not, uh, who uh, is a uh, is a philosophy professor now. I used to uh, I used to love seeing him uh, sing uh, karaoke in Miami, and he'd do some very intense ACDC uh, renditions. Uh, but in any case, um, today I talked to Wozni Lambre. That's Big Woz. 
uh, from uh, from Woke Bros, uh, which he used to co-host uh, with our late brother Michael Brooks, uh, and now uh, continues to co-host with the other person who was co-hosting with Waz and Michael, who's a friend of the show, Nando Vila. So check them out. That's the Black Opinions Matter uh, podcast feed is where you can find Woke Bros uh, every week. Uh, absolutely check out Shahid Buttar's website, shahidforchange.us. Uh, uh, if you live in his district, uh, vote for him and, and, and donate and volunteer in the final stretch. I think because in California, voters are in that position uh, where they're not forced to make pragmatic choices between centrist Democrats uh, and aggressive right-wing Republicans in general elections, that the top two primary vote-getters, even if they're both Democrats, are on the ballot. Why wouldn't you try to send the, at the very least, right, even if there's no last-minute miracle that sends uh, Shahid to Congress, why wouldn't you send the strongest possible uh, anti-Pelosi message uh, at the polls. That is obviously something that should happen, uh, should happen in November or, you know, in October as people are starting to vote. Uh, so, so please, please do that. Uh, coming up uh, next week, um, the guests are going to be uh, Paul Prescott, who's going to talk to me about an article that he wrote for Jacobin, uh, which, by the way, just uh, turned 10 years old. I'm enormously proud to be a columnist for, for Jacobin. You know, um, honestly, I think just uh, just getting to be on the letterhead of that magazine is, uh, is one of the things that, that makes me personally proudest because I was reading it long, long before that. So I'm going to be talking to, uh, to Paul Prescott uh, about uh, his, uh, his article about Trump's uh, National Labor Relations Board, uh, and uh, I am um, I am then going to be talking to a uh, a panel of uh, three historians, or really two academic historians, and one person who's writing a biography of Eugene V. Debs about what we can learn from Debs and uh, the early history uh, of American socialism. Uh, so that is going to be uh, returning champion Harvey J. K. Uh, also, um, Daniel Bessner, uh, who I'm sure people know from the Michael Brooks show and Jacobin, uh, and many other places. Uh, and, uh, and finally, uh, it's, uh, finally the, uh, the other, uh, participant in that panel is going to be Sean Good, uh, Goody, Sean Goody, I should say, uh, who is a editor at Jacobin and is working on a biography of Deb. So I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, the uh, the week afterwards, uh, we are going. I'm going to be talking to Crystal Ball about the election, uh, and uh, also uh, having a debate with the Libertarian uh, Anthony Samroff. Uh, so uh, should be and uh, that uh, dissent article about country music we're talking about that conversation might be as soon as the week after that. So I'm really looking forward to all those conversations. Please like, subscribe, rate, review, join the Patreon, all that good stuff. Uh, and uh, thank you so much uh, for, uh, for watching or listening. Uh, I will see you next week. Left is best.